This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. So excited to have you with us and to be able to... uh, to make it another day together. That's the goal of the show is to give you the information, the tools, the research, just the latest and greatest that you need to make it through the day. Hopefully as well, a little humor if we can find some. Uh, you know, we're, we're not very good at it yet. We're still trying to figure out the humor side of the whole thing. Sorry, Jeff. And then um, lots, of, uh, lots of fun news. We call it empty news, Matt Townsend news. Just headlines. Um, sometimes the headlines just make you feel better about yourself because, you know, you're not that kind of a criminal. You didn't make that silly move. So we'll get to all that. Plus, we talk a lot about climate change. You hear it. Uh, you hear some people that believe in climate change, others that don't. Uh, supposedly, every scientist on the earth does. Now, the funny thing is, can you believe in it, act on it, and not call it climate change? We can call it whatever you want. And they are. Red states, you would think, because much of the country now is governed by our, our red states, Republicans, governed by Republicans, many of which would say they don't necessarily believe in climate change. And yet many, many policies are being passed locally that would show that, you know what, uh, people are trying to protect the environment. Do you think people genuinely don't believe in it or they see that there's a problem and they don't want to change? I think there's a certain percentage that genuinely don't believe in it and I think they're very verbal. And then I think the rest of the people aren't – I mean I think then everyone else kind of believes there's something going on. Or they see a price tag of trying to fix it and they don't want to spend that money. So are there other ways that climate change policies make sense like making us more money, like saving money and conserving money? Uh, just doing basic things like having um, the opportunity to recycle. I mean, it makes sense. Stuff like that makes sense. And, and you don't have to be a... it, making it easy. Yeah. Because there was a point like when I was a kid, recycling was kind of a, a difficult thing to do. You had to yeah. be very uh, – you had to drive to a recycling center. You had to do all this effort. Now it's out – you know, it's at the corner. It, it's, it's, right a, it's one of your and, garbage cans. And now they're even in. making your garbage can – uh, in two parts. So you have a recycle bin and a garbage can, and holy cow, could it be this simple? So what if we just didn't call it uh, climate change, global warming, and what if we just instead got into policies that made sense, policies that still conserved and protected Mother Earth? Holy cow. And apparently red states are doing that. You know, the bottom line, though, is if we want to make a change, we, we, ta- we have Here to take a look at ourselves yeah. – and or, make that change. Well, or... Shamon. Shamon. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, or what you could do is just, you know, posit a, an argument that half the country goes for, half the country doesn't go for, and then let's just stand still and fight about it for 10 years. Shamon. <laughs> okay. I, think, uh, I don't think that's in the. I don't think that's in the song. But I mean, it just sounds like it makes everything better to just add that word to the end of each <laughs> sentence. It totally does. Shame on. So, <laughs> so we'll get into all of that. Um, 
Plus, of course, have some fun along the way. We have a guest coming in that, that can give us some pretty interesting insight as to what, uh, you know, the flyover states are all doing when it comes to climate change. Um, and uh, we'll get to that. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? According to the report in the Dallas Morning News, the Ballot Springs Police Department fired Officer Roy Oliver Tuesday after he fatally shot a 15-year-old Jordan Edwards on Saturday. Edwards' brothers were also in the car, and initially police claimed that the car was aggressively backing up towards them. Police were reportedly in the neighborhood because of a call about a house party. Police Chief Jonathan Haber watched the body cam footage of the shooting and determined that the car was in fact moving forward when the officer fired and one of Edwards' brothers was driving. Dallas County Sheriff's Department and the District Attorney's Office are currently investigating the shooting and that that is moving forward. Uh, Yesterday, Apple uh, announced their quarterly earnings. They sold 50.76 million of its iPhones during the first three months of 2017. That helped the company generate $52 billion in revenue, a 4% increase from the same period last year. The number of iPhones snapped up by consumers was essentially flat, shrinking by 1% over the second quarter of last year. But the average sale price per smartphone climbed, helping the company power to more than $11 billion in net profit. When asked about iPhone sales, CEO uh, Tim Cook pointed to rumors of the new Apple iPhone with a radical design overhaul as a culprit. He goes, we're seeing what we believe to be a pause in purchases of the iPhone, which we believe is due to the e- earlier and much more frequent reports about future iPhones. Um, on note on that, there are r- rumors out there right now that the iPhone 8 will actually be delayed until sometime next year. How so, are we going to function? I don't know. There will not be a new... Well, there... there <laughs> They were gonna. The rumors are they're gonna release three phones. Oh, really? Right. They'll have an iPhone Seven Plus or Seven yeah. S and a Seven S Plus, and also the iPhone Eight all at the same time. Why don't they do like a, an iPhone Seven Minus, A Minus, or something? Oh yeah. The, ooh, the Minus. Yeah. Now it matters because you know, big. They're they're the most uh, profitable country or company in the world. And well, they, but they're starting to see a dip in their phones. Do you know and, why? What? Do you want the answer? Because everyone has one? I'm a doctor, for crying out loud. Okay, go ahead. You know. Because they added a new jack and a dongle to the uh, 7, they, which they just jacked us up. Yeah, they took the uh, headphone jack away. Yeah, you do that. Everyone's yeah. mad now. Well, they saw a 1% decline. Yeah, see? There it is. There it is. It's happening. Everyone in town of Manchester by the Sea is probably sick to death of hearing about Manchester by the Sea, the <laughs> unhyphenated Academy Award winning drama set in, you guessed it, Manchester by the Sea. But in Hold case, on, where is it? It's in Manchester by the Sea. Oh, okay. It's a city. Yeah. But in the case anyone possibly missed it, Amazon is giving all the residents of Manchester, or Ma- the Massachusetts seaside town, a year of free Prime Video. So when the film comes to the streaming service May 5th, all 5,000 residents can watch. That movie. What, what over movie? And over. It's called Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> Haven't heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's by the sea. It's by the sea. It's unhyphenated. Isn't that a town? It's a town in Manchester or Massachusetts. Where is it? Massachusetts. By the sea? By the sea. Okay. And they all going to be able to watch it. And they sell seashore, seashells there. Come oh, on. Yeah. yeah. And finally, an Alabama woman who stomped through a car windshield yesterday told a TV station that she prayed about what to do. Barbara Emily Lowry, 24, said that after thoughtful prayer 
and a night of thinking, she knew smashing the window wasn't a good idea, but she did it anyway. Lowry was arrested Monday around 11 a.m. after police received a call about a disturbance in a furniture store parking lot. Video taken by a bystander shows Lowry standing on the hood of the, of the car, stomping the windshield, and then smashing through the car's sunroof. The windshield was completely destroyed. Lowry decided to smash the windshield after a man who she believed to be her boyfriend was cheating on her. Another source claims the two were not actually in, the, in a relationship. But when asked for clarification, Lowry said that she didn't want to get, it, get into his personal business. I already knew going into it that I would have to face some consequences. But like I said, I prayed about it and stuff, and I did it anyways. She was charged with disorderly conduct. Whoa. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Does, um, um, so don't you pray uh-huh. to like then receive wisdom and light back? And wouldn't God like say, oh, honey. No, 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 no. Right. We're not doing that. But she said she prayed about it. Yeah, yeah. She she thought it over. She knew she was going to face consequences, okay. but she did it anyway. So she's saying she it was intentional. Yeah. With malice and a prayer. And she done did it. So, but she didn't just pray about it. She prayed about it and stuff. And stuff. That's what she said. She prayed about oh, it good. and stuff. That's well, a another quote. St- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what's the stuff? And then she stomps on this windshield. She thought it was her boyfriend. It turned out that apparently they were not in a relationship, but they hard to get clarification because she said she didn't want to get into his personal business. Yeah, and stuff. And stuff. Hmm. Was she listening to this song? Not sure. Maybe. Mm. I don't know if you stomp a windshield to this music, but... <laughs> This isn't this isn't stomping music. Well, no. usually you don't pray, you know, before stomping somebody's window in. You know, no. and stuff. Yeah. So the whole situation's kind of odd. What would you do to fix that, Matt? There seems to be a relationship issue there. There's a big relationship issue. It's called communication. Uh-huh. And then we've got to figure out what the whole prayer thing's for. Okay. Because is she asking for permission to stomp the windshield? Apparently, and okay. uh, but you know. Um, if you're going to stomp in a windshield, mm. you definitely need a song with more of a drop. Yeah. You know what I mean? This, this is kind of the drop right here. But here it is. Not, yeah, a, no. real, not a drop. No. Not a drop. You know what, though? What a great defense. Who's going to be able to argue that she got an answer? Like, that was the answer to her prayer. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't even think she said she got the answer to her prayer. I no, think no, she no. just said she prayed and stuff. Yeah, she didn't acknowledge the answer. Yeah. No okay. disclosure there. Well, I, so. I think what we ought to do is probably teach her other methods of dealing with issues and stuff, you know? Talk. What do you think about the windshield and sunroof combo of destroying both of them? Well, I mean, I think it's excessive. Okay. I mean, a windshield's expensive, but a sunroof, I mean, that's going to be really expensive. Mm. So now we know yeah. two things that you can add to any sentence, chamon and, and yeah. stuff. See, this is the stuff you don't get on any other show. The and vid- stuff. The video's I, great. Yeah. She's on top of the car. Just jumping. Just kicking and, in the windshield. It's great. Um, man, wow. That's just, it's moving. Mm. And it's neat to see people still believe in God. Yeah. But I still think... If she were listening in her prayer, God probably would have said, Ugh. I mean, you've got, the, you've got agency. You're well, free did, to choose whatever you want to do. She did kind of here. acknowledge that by saying she knew there were going to be consequences. No, she knew. Yeah, she knew. But it's kind of like, okay, just help me 
not get tased. And stuff. And stuff. <laughs> Unbelievable. Did you hear about this uh, boy? A mosquito bite saves the life of a boy. When? What do you mean when? When does a mosquito bite actually do something positive? A seven-year-old boy's life saved by camping trip mosquito bite, which led to discovery of a rare blood disorder. Ah. What the family thought was just a mosquito bite turned into a nightmare journey for them. The boy ended up in intensive care. Seven-year-old boy was fighting for his life after a mosquito bite on the family holiday. Nick Jessel, 42, and his partner Emma Riley, 45, noticed a bump on their son Jacob's right arm after returning from a camping trip uh, in East Yorkshire. I think that might be by Manchester by the sea. No, I think... Uh this boy was in England, possibly. Yeah, I don't know romantic. Are English is. mosquitoes different than oh, they're, yeah. mosquitoes we have, have here? Have you seen their teeth? Really? They got gnarly teeth there. Okay. <laughs> Mom, Emma, took Jacob to the oh. the doc. Ah! I uh, took him to the doctor only to receive a devastating call later that day that urged that they needed to urgently get back to the hospital because the doctors discovered his white blood cell count had plummeted. Mm. He was sick. What followed was a nightmare journey, which was seen uh, little Jacob undergo a failed bone marrow transplant and kept in isolation in the hospital after stem cell treatments. Man. It was heartbreaking for us. We knew the bruise on his arm wasn't right, but we still thought it was just a little insect bite. They called it a dodgy insect bite. But uh, they didn't know how seriously ill he was. But he was. He was, uh, he was in shock, and uh, they were trying to face the fact that um, he was uh, – Facing leukemia, apparently. Oh, wow. So a little insect bite. Wait a minute. Got him a diagnosis, which if not, he would have died. Hold on. It landed. Get it. Let me just... Hold on. Get it. Uh, I'm nervous. Got it. Yes, you did. Boy, that was messy. That was a big bug. Big buck. Anyway, the boy, uh, Nick, um, found out in, in the end it wasn't leukemia. It's he great. just needed some transfusions and uh, changed his life. All because of a cute little insect. So don't talk bad about insects. And if you're going to pray to God, make sure you listen to what he says. And stuff. And stuff. And shamon. That's the entire first few minutes of the show right there wrapped up we'll take a break when we come back we're talking about the words we use uh when we talk about climate change policy maybe there's better ways to frame it so it doesn't always create an argument stick with us this is the matt townsend show helping you be the good in the world Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, more and more we are seeing, you know, a, a disagreement in our country about climate change. You know, it seems like science in many ways has established some impact on our climate because of the way we live and the environment. And yet uh, so many people don't like to hear that. They don't. They fight against it. Uh, President Trump 
in fact, has made his choice to the person to head the Environmental Protection Agency is former Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt himself has sued the EPA many times and has regularly sided uh, with the fossil fuel industry. In fact, it's so tense in some cases that in their hearings, they're asking him, do you believe in climate change? And in, in a lot of the appointments that President Trump has made. So to, to kind of walk through that, um, it doesn't mean that people in red states aren't taking care of the environment. In fact, aren't specifically working on improving conditions uh, for clim- of uh, climate change. But they're not actually calling it climate change. And our next guest is a, a professor that has written a wonderful article about this topic. Rebecca J. Romsdahl is a professor of environmental science and policy at the University of North Dakota. And her research examines issues that interface between environmental science and public policy. And we're honored to have her on the show today. Uh, Dr. Romsdahl, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me this morning. I'm you happy bet. to be here. Now, what? since when has climate become so divisive? It seems like it's something that every human being would be able to want to improve. Yes. Well, the divisiveness comes, um, kind of can be traced back to the George W. Bush administration. There was, um, specifically, there was a strategy memo by politics, a a political strategy memo, and it was the first um, memo to really emphasize that we should change from using the term global warming to using the term climate change, mm. because climate change is very uh, neutral in a sense. It's a science that's been studied for geological time frames. Yeah. So climate's been changing forever, and it will always change. And so that was seen as a more neutral way to frame it. And so it really became much more political after that. Interesting, because and that actually that goes really well with uh, your, the article you wrote. You wrote the article called Red State Rural America is Acting on Climate Change Without Calling It Climate Change. It's interesting that I guess it's all about terms. I mean, some, some of this argument is just all about how we phrase it. Yes. In, in a lot of ways, it does focus on that. So for... The, the last couple of uh, decades now, we've been having a lot of disagreements about how to address climate change. And that's really an emphasis on our values and our concerns and on what we prioritize. So it has a lot to do with how we frame the problem. And that's what my research has been looking at over the last 10 years or so. Is it, it, it kind of seems like to me, um, when I think of it on a local level, and it's it's almost like you, you still kind of go back to this word like environmentalists that are just out to crush America's business world and the businesses fighting the environmentalists or, um, you know, the rights of the states versus the rights of the feds is I, I guess when it comes down to it, though, there are areas when when it comes to environmental areas, um, for example, you know, parks, natural resource management, uh, public health, soil conservation, every small, every state, red or blue, has to deal with a lot of very basic decisions that come that are a part of climate change or the environmental issues. Yes, and that is where I've been finding in my research that people are able to 
um, begin discussions or even come together and find common concerns and values that they agree on. And that's really what this framing question or framing issue is about. So in uh, 2008 or nine, I started a survey with a couple of colleagues. We we surveyed natural resource managers, public health officials, um, folks in the county level, local level government, and asked them about what are they planning to do to address climate change. And one of the responses that came out of that survey really sparked my interest in this idea of framing um, the issue. The respondent said, well, basically, uh, the public understands the value of clean water and clean air. And so if we need to protect those or improve the quality of those, most people will agree with us. Hmm. But if you start talking about the idea of climate change and that humans are responsible for it, then people get um, either angry about it or it's very hard for them to sink their teeth into it. Yeah. So that person really helped me where I should go with this this idea of framing the question. It's so it really is. It's brilliant, and it's so. If we frame it as water, we we hear the stories of Flint, Michigan, and we think, well, that's just horrible. If and we if we think of clean air, we you know we remember the seventies and eighties where air was such a big deal. I live in Utah, which has the most beautiful mountains, and every because we kind of live in a bowl, there's an inversion every winter, and air quality becomes a big issue. So, but so I guess the the framing makes it more overt and obvious to the local. I guess, I guess it's it's taking a generic, general, big idea and taking it right to the root. Yes, and so we followed that up with a second survey, and we talked to mayors across uh, the Great Plains states, and we really asked them some different questions about how are they framing climate change in their discussions about these issues of natural resources or uh, energy. And we got back several responses, many responses that indicated they were talking about these issues from a local context. How is it important to the people in their community? So some said they frame it as sustainability or as flood or drought management. So these are issues that they face within their city uh, planning or soil and water conservation planning, for example, already. And so they can really focus on how would climate change affect these issues, but they maybe don't have to focus on the climate change terminology. Now, is I mean, in a way, is, is this, are you seeing, or could it be that this is a lesson for people maybe on a state or a federal level to pay attention to how the mayors are doing it? By not getting caught up in the argument, we can just start dealing with the line items. Exactly. So that's what we found in this second survey was that really a majority of the mayors who responded felt a sense of responsibility to address this issue, um, but they they know their constituents, they know the people in their community, so they know whether or not their community is um, ready to talk about climate change or if it's really still a very controversial issue. So they can frame the benefits that they might be looking for in certain policies 
and they can then you know get more support for those policies whether it is um, energy savings or um, drought management for example right and drought management uh, would be a you know a direct impact of climate change over time, as would flooding in certain other areas that and, and you can almost see New Orleans would flame it frame it as you know how are we going to handle the water as it rises um, it 's interesting and I guess there 's a quote uh, I think it was tip o 'Neill that said all politics is personal and it's almost like on the federal level where you hear people fighting, uh, you know, trying to get global trade agreements uh, on climate change through. I mean, it makes sense country to country. But in reality, um, you may not be able to unite a country to the degree you might be able to get everybody or more people on board in a city. Yes. And so that's what we saw coming back out of this second survey is that mayors and local officials are really, they do this all the time. And actually all of us do this as, as far as framing issues. We frame a discussion because we have a relationship with the person that we're talking to, or we might frame it a different way if we're not sure how they feel about the topic. Hmm. And so politicians do this all the time. They do it naturally, and we all do it naturally as part of our discussion. But with politicians, if they can learn how to do it strategically, then they find that they can get more support for issues that they feel are a priority. So a lot of the mayors who responded in our survey, they felt that addressing climate change in different ways should be a priority. And so they were using a framing strategy to try to find ways to prioritize these Mm. issues. I love that. It's, I mean, it's also interesting, Rebecca, that, it, I mean, one of the kind of overall frames that seems to work is, you know, savings, fiscal, yes. financial, sa- I mean, energy management is about savings, right? And, um, and conservation is about savings. Yes. Uh, for a local example here in North Dakota, the city of Fargo, they have, um, set up a, a methane capture system on their local landfill, which allows them to sell the methane gas as electricity to the local electric company, but it also helps them to mitigate those greenhouse gas emissions that would otherwise just be uh, released into the atmosphere from this capped-off landfill. So that's a way that local governments or even state governments are able to really integrate those two values of saving money and potentially, if there's a value for it, of mitigating climate change. I love it. And two, um, you know, you almost, it doesn't have to have a debate. You can make an argument, every argument about the environment doesn't need to be about the environment. Um, but, but I guess what's funny, too, is the person that would have been in charge of capturing the methane gas, um, that, that same person could could be what historically was a typical environmentalist that is so whatever, whatever, whatever. But just by reframing, and I guess this could actually happen in every debate in our government, is reframing it to the betterment of the whole population and then find other ways to solve the problem. Exactly. And 
we do this every day when we are talking with people. We might be trying to persuade someone uh, where to go to lunch with us. And so we frame the discussion from the point of view, hey, I think you'll really like this place. And we, we know that person well. So we can frame the discussion in a way that persuades them to our point of view. And it works. And that's what, yeah, that's what politics does. That's what some of these local leaders are doing to help them address the needs of their community, the concerns of the people that live there, but they don't have to get bogged down in the political debate or Hmm. controversy or outrage about the term climate change. Do you sense that this is, I mean, it's almost about our identity, right? So if you go to, to a certain state where green is part of the state's identity, um, and conservation, like, I don't know, an Oregon, um, a Seattle, a Minnesota. Is it, I mean, is it different um, if it becomes a part of the state's identity versus some of the red states where they're not known for being like green states, but they they are known for good people? Or how much of the argument ends up being just about how they've identified? That has quite a bit to relate to climate change. Because the the term has become so political in our country, it really has divided people. Mm. So when you get divided that way, it's hard for people on either side to be able to talk about climate change in a way that might make it seem like they are relating to the other side. Yeah. So it becomes almost like... Um, sports fans where you can't you can't relate to the opposing team's fans Mm. Um, and so that political debate that divide has become so controversial in this country that we find this strategy coming up at the local level so that uh, politicians and even uh, non-politicians local soil and water conservation managers can address the issue without getting mired into that political divide. So it's really useful for people to be able to frame the issue in a way that is uh, tapping into the values of the people they're trying to relate to. We've, um, and and I don't know if you feel this in North Dakota, but um, living in the West, for example, it's, it's strange because we have so many uh, kind of land disputes with the federal government in the West. We tend to be carrying more uh, federal land than back East, but then a lot of times we feel like the Easterners are telling us how to run the land. And um, so there almost is this inherent divide between people that live more in the land. And I, I kind of feel like Fargo might be a lot like Utah or North Dakota might be a lot like Utah in that, People live on the land and they hunt the land, and yet there's other states that can't believe people hunt. And then you get into gun issues. And um, how how much of the framing? I guess this is why, as you say, the local framing is so much more valuable because and easier to move the people. Because trying to get uh, the entire United States on the same frame seems harder. Yes. Um, so you get a. Um a better sense of the framing at the local level because you can really tap into people's concerns. But we do see some of that um, local level grassroots uh, framing 
can sometimes influence state-level hmm. framing or state-level influence. So, for example, in uh, early 2000s, 2005, uh, Seattle Mayor Nichols, he led um, this development of what was called the Mayor's Climate Change Agreement, which was an effort to try to get mayors to uh, persuade their cities to match the Kyoto Protocol and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And he got a lot of support that way. And he was able to influence the state of Washington to pass legislation to adopt this idea as well. Hmm. And right now we're seeing some response from even governors in red states, such as uh, Ohio or Illinois or uh, Michigan governors that are saying, we're going to support more measures for renewable energy and energy efficiency savings in their state. Interesting. You can see it coming yeah. from uh, businesses within those types of states, maybe Amazon or uh, Google or Whirlpool. If there's a strong um, business sector within the state that has support for addressing climate change, people will find ways to frame it to help match um, the local concerns, and those local concerns can help influence state level. And what we've seen in the past is that if you get enough support from different state levels, then you can even start to influence the national government. Yeah. So well, other we, parts of the world have been taking more of a top-down approach in yep. climate change. In the U.S., we have more of a bottom-up approach, I would say. And it kind of, it, it works in when you hear, you know, mayors. The mayor in, in uh, I think it was Seattle, uses the word climate change in the Kyoto Agreement, which could then be passed up to the state level, which would buy into climate change in the Kyoto Agreement. But then in Ohio, it was more about renewable energies, words that make sense to the businesses there, words that make sense to the people there. I mean, it, the, the power is we could all be saying the same thing. And even, by the way, following certain uh, guidelines from the Kyoto Agreement and still – just use the words that match our people. I mean, it's so it's such powerful insight, Rebecca. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Ramsdahl. She is talking about how we frame the conversation about climate change may actually determine how far we can go with it. And one of the reasons we may be running into problems is because we keep framing it in a frame that doesn't sit well with our constituencies. Um, we could we could still be talking about the exact same thing, whether it's renewable energies or whether it's, you know, healthier water, cleaner water, cleaner air. It's your people may want clean air, but it may not buy in fully to climate change initiatives. So call it something else. We'll take a break. We'll come back talking about how you talk, how you frame stuff up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Rebecca Ramsdahl, and she's a professor of environmental science and policy at the University of North Dakota. 
and her research examines issues at the interface between environmental science and public policy. Some of her recent research uh, includes topics of state and local government adaptation planning for climate change, as well as uh, the reframing issue that we've been talking about with her. Rebecca, again, thank you for your time and being with us. Great to be here. This, it really is an interesting idea. All we have to do in a way is reframe um, to our audience uh, and, and use words that seem to fit better. If climate change is too div- divisive or divisive for people, then maybe we use the word sustainable. Um, maybe we use, maybe we focus more on the needs of our community, clean water, clean air, um, renewable energy, or let's just save money. Let's just save uh, costs and let's save uh, things. Is, is, do you sense that um, – is this a big enough movement in the red states that you see it actually becoming as important? I mean, is it creating the results we need? For the results that we really need, we probably will need national action at some point again in order to help – uh, the U.S. to contribute to the the real global priorities of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But at the state and local level, there is a more there's more of an emphasis on the ability to adapt to the changes in the climate that are already happening and that are going to happen in the future. So we will need more national action. And hopefully we'll, we will be able to, to get that in the near future. But in the meantime, a lot of state and local governments are needing to adapt to these impacts. So, for example, um, extreme weather events are likely to become more common in the, the near future or in the distant future with climate change. So a lot of cities or local areas are going to need to figure out how do they adapt to things like flash floods? Mm. And to get people to talk about that is pretty easy. It's something they have experience with. And as one of uh, my interviewees told me at one point, uh, people might deny believing in climate change, but nobody denies extreme weather. Everyone's had experience with it. And so you can plan for how to adapt to climate change impacts at the local level. We like to say that actually uh, local governments are the first responders for uh, climate change impacts because they need to be able to adapt to these things like flash floods. And again, everybody gets the extreme of uh, a, a weather experience or a catastrophe in their area. And I, I guess then we – are we misleading people? I mean, let's say you are a mayor and you believe in climate change and you're you're on board fully. Um, I guess is it just you're just being efficient or are you being kind of manipulative doing this? Really, it's more about finding common ground with your constituents. What you are as an elected official is you represent um, the values that people have, the people who voted for you. So that's what elected officials and and local uh, government staff are doing, is that they're trying to make sure they stay in tune with the values of their communities. So framing is really about finding a way to discuss those values and to discuss the concerns associated with them. So if people are 
outraged by the term climate change and the political division that goes with that, then that's not a good strategy for discussing how to help uh, the community adapt to uh, extreme weather events or to save energy. But you can talk about those ideas as being good for the environment or good for the public community, good for the future, you know, providing a good future for our kids, having clean clean air and clean water or even natural wildlife and great parks to visit. And so you can find those common values by finding a way to frame the topic of discussion. Yeah. And it, 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 to me, too, it's just smart governing. Do you feel like on maybe a national level, is it a different game? It seems like on the national level, um, some some more of the organized environmental groups as well as kind of the anti-environmental groups, they're more organized. There's a lot of money there. There's a lot of people giving money to politicians. Is it harder, for example, the president of the United States to – to, to maneuver the language um, just because of, of the people that are around them? Yes, I, I would say so. I, I don't have a lot of study experience in it, but just from my own observations, I would say, yes, that is more difficult because at the national level, you have, as you say, a lot more power and influence and money that is exchanged between people and there is a lot more lobbying and different groups have different power at different times. So it is more difficult to change the frame at the national level. It can take more time or it might take a national crisis sometimes. So um, at that level, it's it's more about framing the the national agenda, uh, similar to framing a local agenda, but it it is more difficult because you have international influence as well. So within uh, the national level, we would hope that we'll get back to a point where we can uh, focus on mitigating the climate change uh by dealing with the greenhouse gas emissions, that's something that really the national government can be most helpful in. Yeah. Is um, do I, I guess you probably don't want to give a grade to President Trump. But I mean, having his the person that's now running his EPA, somebody that has fought against uh, the EPA and and filed cases against the EPA. Do you think the jargon and all the verbiage that was being used in um, the last few years of of uh, all of the running for presidency has it has it tainted the water? Do you think has it has it negatively impacted the the movement? I think it's too early to tell with the new administration. Um, there has been a lot of um, political. Uh, negativity associated with climate change at the national level. And that really has, um, it has colored the discussion, it's tainted the, the discussion, and that has really flowed down to the state and local levels. But I have some hopeful uh, possibilities, um, not perhaps with um, Secretary Pruitt or Director Pruitt in EPA, but I would say that there's a possibility that the environmental movement, if they really wanted to help frame the issue at the national level, 
they could talk to Governor Perry, who is now Secretary of the Department of Energy. Right. So when he's, he's done governor it. of Texas, he yes, he's done it. He has turned Texas into a a world leader in in wind energy, hmm. and he's helping to uh, helping Texas to lead the way to lead the transition out of coal and oil and into the new future of renewable energy. Awesome, good stuff, Rebecca. I think you're right. And uh, I mean, too, the benefit of having a governor there is maybe he would understand how to frame it and and say it and 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 ease everyone else into the changes that we all want and need anyway. Cleaner air, cleaner, um, cleaner water, just more savings overall. Interesting stuff. We will uh, take a break. When we come back, McKenna Baus will be with us. Baus in the house. And uh, she's going to help us bend our mind on another issue. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show in the house. Uh, McKenna Baus. Baus in the house. And as she is known to do, she likes to bring us little mind benders, other ways of thinking. And as we come off a topic um, on climate change, by simply reframing the conversation, you can still get virtually the exact same stuff done, just framing it differently. You're bringing us another communication uh, insight. I am indeed. About uh, linguistics. Talk about uh, how we talk and where we talk and what it means. Sure. So with... You know, the relationships with people around us, with friendships, things like that. One of the most common phrases that women specifically use um, to describe, I'm just about to use it, close relationships is close. Close is the phrase that women use to describe a relationship that is good, that, you know, is something that there's, I guess, a lot of value placed on. Yeah. And they sort of wanted to dive into what that meant. And so there was some research done and they started asking, you know, what does close mean to you? And some of the things that did come up um, and I think are sometimes what we think of most often is, oh, well, I see this person a lot. Or things um, like the idea that even if I haven't seen them in a really long time, we can pick things up right where we left off. Hmm. But the most common answer had to deal with the type of conversations that these women were having with each other um, and the idea that – They were able to talk about things in a certain way that created a very um, intimate bond. Huh. So that's interesting. Uh, When women talk about what makes a close relationship, it's what they talk about. Exactly. That tends to constitute the relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. Where with men – like, it, it can apply for men. It might. But it, the study was talking about how men don't always talk as in-depth Yeah. Um, with some of their good friends. One of the examples in this is this man, he was going and playing you know, tennis every week with one of his guy friends, and he considered him a close friend. Sure. Um, but when the man announced – they told him that he was getting divorced or he found out, he was just really surprised because – Nothing had we come up and it up. didn't necessarily had, had to have been talked about, whereas a similar example was given with a pair of women. And when the woman found out, like, 
by the time the divorce was started to happen, she felt very slighted and very lied to. And there was this huge betrayal of trust because she expected to have been told something like that sooner. Interesting. And but I could see the men saying, well, so what makes that a close relationship? Well, you know, we 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 play tennis. Yeah, we, every, we hang out. We hang every out week. every week. We like to do the same thing. It's almost more we're close by what we're doing exactly versus what we're talking about. Yeah. And so with women, there's a couple different things that are important with that discussion that needs to be happening between the friends. Um, there needs to be just sort of it's expected that there's some length that's given and some depth to talking about what's going on in their lives. And a, a, there's a phrase that linguists call troubles talk where they talk about specifically, this is what's hard in my life. Mm. And that's a very important part of how women bond. Um, but additionally, they also need to be able to have a certain extent of um, just, you know, random chatter about the more in- inconsequential day-to-day things. Yeah. Um, but there needs to be sort of this like emotional vulnerability that is created by sharing personal details, things that Interesting. are Interesting. Yeah. And you can see women might want that. And you can almost see that men would find the man close if if he could kind of share, but it's not expected. And it didn't have to be emotional, yeah. but you protected my vulnerability. Yeah. So you helped me save face. Mm-hmm. Oh, my word. McKenna, this is interesting. It is. Good stuff. A little mind bender from McKenna Baus. Baus in the house. Thanks, McKenna. Happy. Good stuff. Good learning. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. This is the place, you know, people call heaven on earth. I mean... Are these the people that are a part of... Town, town. Yeah. Those that uh, are, you know, townies from Townton Abbey, my uh, my online simulated city, Townton Abbey. If, if you want to join, just look me up. Go to SimCity and, and look for town, Townton Abbey because I'm there. I'm there every day uh, for easily three minutes a day. And now I'm looking to hire an administrator to run it for me. Right now, the leading administrator that I'm reviewing is my 12-year-old son, Josh. He may take over Townton Abbey. So it's going to be a step up is what you're saying. Actually, not what I'm saying. But uh, it's kind of rude. Uh, anyway, on the show today, it is we are celebrating Paranormal Day. You know, pe- people have been claiming to have seen or experienced things that were impossible to explain for millennia. Maybe it was a UFO, ghost, a chupacabra. Who knows? Is that like a chimichanga? It's like a chimichanga with less sour cream and... Um, See, yeah. now that I could go for. I don't care and for avocado. sour cream. I love it. I love a chupacabra uh, smothered. Yes. yes. Or my, wet 
Sometimes they call it wet. Oh, wet chupacabra. Anyway, do they exist at all? Well, today is the day you should find out. Today is the day that uh, you can talk openly about any paranormal event that you've had. But do remember that there's always tomorrow, and tomorrow everyone will remember what you said today. I swear, this is just a few weeks ago, I was in the bathroom, I swear I saw some little kid run by the bathroom door, and there was nobody there in the house. Oh. I called out for my wife and kids. Yeah, they weren't there. That's weird. I looked in the closets, behind the doors, nobody. There was not a child running through your house. No. Did you hear the history of the house? Did you know that the house you moved into had a child that disappeared in the house and has been running around ever since? Ooh, that went strange. Hey, um, it's also Lumpy Rug Day. Lumpy Rug was established to encourage people to pay attention to their lumpy rugs. And no, we're not talking about hair pieces. Over... That is one lumpy, squishy rug. Mm, that didn't sound lumpy at all. It sounded squishy. The squishy rug day is another day. Lumpy rug day is today. Sorry. Over time, fibers can get pulled up and bunch up, and unfortunately, they create a lump in the rug. So today's the day to uh, gather your few lumps in your rug. Maybe ever have the whole family kneel around it and just talk to those lumps. One lump or two. <laughs> Today's the day you repair your rug. Or, you know, throw it out. Get it back to its pristine state. So we're celebrating all of that fun today. Plus, of course, other uh, empty news we'll be covering. Um, somebody apparently in Virginia is, is going around shaving cats. You just catch a cat and then they shave the cat. Um, you know, it's kind of weird. Maybe they just shave their legs, maybe their underbelly, whatever. But it's strange and it's happening. So if you thought you had it bad, you could be in Virginia where they're shaving cats. Or um, time-consuming haircut. Have you ever had somebody that that just was taking way too long to cut your hair? Well, this got so bad that eventually a woman was prompted to pull a gun. So we'll tell you that story as well. Again, to give you some hope that, hey, maybe you don't have it so bad. All of that straight ahead. Plus, we will also um, be talking today about sports. And is is there a place for humility in sports? Oh, absolutely. Don't you think? What do you think every or not every, but a lot of baseball players do as they're coming or they're rounding third going home after they've hit a big home run? They 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 like look to heaven. Mm-hmm. They, they cross show, themselves. Uh-huh. They do like a little kiss the hand. Kiss the hand deal. to heaven. Straight to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. They do that in basketball too. They'll hit a three-pointer after they look down the other player. Then they kiss <laughs> their three fingers and point them to heaven. It's good stuff. That's one version of humility. But sports should be very humbling because you win sometimes, you lose sometimes. We'll be speaking with a psychologist uh, here to talk about how you, you could introduce more humility into the sporting events and, uh, and how it could be very beneficial to all of us, from the parents all the way down through the coaches to the players. Humility and sports, we'll be talking about that next. All that ahead, but first to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what is going on? 
Former North Charleston police officer who shot and killed Walter Scott in 2015 will no longer face state murder charges. Ex-cop Mike Michael Slager pled guilty Tuesday to federal charges of violating Scott's civil rights. In exchange, prosecutors arranged for the existing South Carolina murder charge and two other federal counts to be dropped. Under the federal charge to which he pled guilty, Slager can face as little as no prison time or as much as life behind bars all depending on whether the jury believes he committed murder. The former officer's state case uh, ended in a hung jury last year and was scheduled for retrial this year. If you remember, this is the video of the uh, what man being stopped for a traffic stop, and then he runs away, and a cop shoots him eight times in the back. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and he called it self-defense, but then you watch the cell phone video, and you're like, the guy wasn't doing anything to you. Right. He's running away, so... We'll uh, see where that goes when it goes to case. The Cassini spacecraft, this one that dove through the rings of Saturn yeah, last yeah. week, it isn't it? going quietly into the good night like it was. It was kind of <laughs> they were expecting to basically to run this into a rock. Yeah, just let it retire. It. The mission's final days involved the probe taking 22 daring dives between Saturn and its rings. The first took place April 29th on Monday. NASA reported a surprising discovery from the dive's data. It's really empty between the planet and the rings. NASA says the scientists are puzzled, but the area between that is pretty much free from dust. Researchers converted data from one of Cassini's instruments into audio in order to listen for sounds of dust particles hitting the spacecraft, but heard very little evidence of impacts. The hmm. gap between Saturn and its rings is just uh, 1,200 miles wide. The planet's rings consist of ice, rock particles, and uh, rock particles. Images of the gap led NASA scientists to believe that it's clear of large particles that could damage Cassini, but they expected more dust was found so the results are they found nothing how what a great learning and they blew up their hypothesis they thought it would be pummeled right and really it didn't even get dusty no excellent learning and what's his name Cassimi. that's the name of the, the spacecraft spacecraft Cassimi. i'm calling it as if it's a human right good job for him good job you now may he just continue to fly Dust-free. Dust-free forever in through space. <laughs> it was a scary evening for members of the Colgate University community on Monday evening after the campus was placed on lockdown. A call came to campus security just after 8 p.m. that an individual entered the O'Connor Campus Center, or as they call it on campus, the COOP. Uh, it is known on... Uh, so campus security immediately initiated the lockdown, began an investigation after assistance with the individual in question and confirmation of the situation. It was determined that the student was an art student who was using a glue gun to complete a project. So they locked uh, down campus over a glue gun. At no point were any shots fired. the glue gun down. That uh, stuff is hot. No report on if he had extra glue sticks or not. But you need extra glue sticks. When I bet he like had like, a, uh, what do they call it? Um, that thing that always goes over their shoulder with all the cartridges. He's got like 20 little glue mm-hmm. sticks. Do not make me glue that, you. That stuff will burn you. Totally. And finally, Coca-Cola says a new soda just released in Japan ended up with some fiber in it. Right? Really? And this isn't like a recall notice. They're actually marketing it. It has fiber. Like paper? Like 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 healthy dietary fiber. Coke adds life. Says that in and fact, fiber. the fiber was added on purpose to this beverage, which is being marketed as the company's healthiest soft drink yet. And brave soda drinkers can now find it on the shelves under the product name of Coke Plus. Only in Japan, though. The company gave an earlier warning about Coke Plus back in February. The official press announcement promised a no-calorie soda with five grams of indigestible dextrin. Huh? So I looked up. What's dextrin? Dextrin, I'm going to bet, is just a fiber 
that you that's like Muselix, is it? Or it's, I think uh, it was a show about a guy that uh, hunted down serial killers or bad guys. Oh, cereal, like the ones that's, that high, cereal's high in fiber. That's, that's dextrin. See, it's all circular. So dextrin, a group of low molecular weight carbohydrates produced by whatever it is for starch and whatever. So, you know, you get the scientific one there. But yeah. down here it says uh, it's a dietary fiber. It's used in food. But what it says, what wheat dextrin is a versatile product that is primarily used in the textiles, adhesive, and food industry as a dietary fiber. So, so textiles, adhesives. And in dietary fiber for in food. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So it's glue. So you can not only – you can use it as a paste, really. Yes. So Coke adds life and regularity. Regularity. So the cake uh, – Coke Asia-Pacific director of the product development, a certain Dr. David Michaels, who came dressed in a lab coat because, you know, he has to be a scientist, let the purported health pros of uh, drinking fiber. He said among them, consuming one Coke Plus a day – in uh, light of a multivitamin, can help suppress fat absorption and moderate levels of triglycerides in the blood. It'll moderate the the, the triglycerides. Oh, so. so they're trying to maybe make it a healthy, like because it removes fat from your system, right? So, so then, it clot. Let me get this straight. Yeah, just yeah. the mechanism. Uh-huh. So you drink Coke glue, Coke Plus, Coke Plus. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the it the it then plugs. Parts of your body so it won't absorb or it actually makes fat cling to it. It's indigestible, the the fiber. So, yeah, yeah, so the yeah, fiber yeah. is going to pass right through. But what right. it will do on the way through is grab fat. Right. That's what they're saying. And and carbs, I guess. And it will just create – like it will just glue them and then um, you'll just pass the fat and the carbs instead of absorbing them into your system. Yeah. So well, the, what, the, I mean what could go wrong with that? This is the effect of putting roughage in your soda. Yeah. Right. So it says in 2007, Coke actually introduced plus variant in several countries that it was it said it was fortified with vitamins and minerals It even carried the same name, Coke Plus. Japanese consumers didn't love it, but the reception in America was especially brutal. The problem was the FDA sent Coke a threatening letter explaining that plus violates the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. Any product that the word on the label must what the word on the label must contain at least 10 percent more nutrients than comparable products. Hmm. So they violated the rules there. Yeah. Coke Felt Plus complied with those regulations, but bottles started disappearing from stores in 2011 anyways. But Coke brags that this newer version of its first ever Coca-Cola product approved by Japan, the Japanese government is a so-called food of specific health use. <laughs> that Japanese government indication is supposedly reserves for products that only have a clear proven health benefit. So Coke's like, look, J- Japan likes it. So hey, Japan loves it. It adds life and fiber. So what do you think? Coke as a health product? No. No? Not buying it? Doesn't seem to pass the, you know, the smell test. Well, it'll pass. It's indigestible. That's true. <laughs> we just drink it to get our caffeine fix and then we move on. Yeah. By the way, I'm, I've, uh, I'm, about, I'm down to about one Diet Coke a week. Wow. Just on a special occasion. Yeah, and it's funny. I can't even drink it all. Mm. See, just skipping, you know, for a week or two really makes a difference. Then you don't crave it anymore. Yeah, and I don't. I feel taller. 
I don't know why. Mm, that's not true. Debatable. Hey, one uh, thing before we move on. Again, we've been looking for um, some contributors to be on the show. We have a lot of our producers that are going away to do internships. Some are leaving us because they've got to graduate. And because we've been looking, I've, I've actually tasked Jeffrey Liam Simpson to be in charge of finding some new contributors and he's just asked them to put together some some demo reels, and we're, we've been showing them or playing them on the sh- on the show here. You've we- enjoyed every single one of them, really. I, I only remember one, Bob Moss, who has a great uh, plant show about plant therapy. There How was to listen the, to a plant, the airplane comedian. Yeah, the airplane comedian. I didn't I didn't like that one a lot. I can't remember the the third one, so it must not have been that good. The, the third one was Bob Moss. No, he was the first one, the very first oh. one. Then there's airline comedian. We did one yesterday that that we, I guess we have to finish because he wrote he sent us such a long reel. But it's about a tax man. He's a tax advisor in the old west, but he, tax the, enforcer, tax enforcer, but set in a setting of the old west. So it's a little bit of John Wayne if he were a tax enforcer, or Clint Eastwood, if you will, or Clint Eastwood. Okay, okay. So. Where we, where we last left off with this episode, Evan the Evader Evanston was evading his taxes. Okay. All right. Let's and see. And now he's, maybe, in a, he's in a saloon. The tax man is going to come in and enforce the Maybe it'll get better. <laughs> Don't pack your bags just yet, Evanston. It was the tax man, a man the people of deduction feared more than anything. Oh, Taxman, I heard you was back in town. Uh, making your end of the fiscal year rounds, are you? Yeah, that's right. And it looks like you're the next weasel on my list, Evanston. I'm sure I don't know what you mean. Well, let me enlighten you then. You've been hiring men from the Orient and passing them off as contract workers. Didn't your uh, mama ever teach you tax ethics? Well, you're one to talk. I heard you was late sending out your K-1s to the partners. You must be hard of hearing. Maybe you ought to use that dirty finger of yours to clean out your ears. Uh, Which finger? My shooting finger? You shot me in the hand! Now how do you expect me to change the Chinaman's status on my tax forms? Relax, Evanston. I shot your left hand. It's your right hand that does your dirty work for you. Now, get out of here, Evanston, and don't let me catch you evading the law again. Way to go, tax man. (laughs) Uh, Here's a nice cold one. All in the house, of course. Now, Pete, you're not losing your memory, are you? You know I can't accept gifts from any of my clients. Speaking of which, here's a little gift for you. It's a reminder of our little audit on Wednesday. I'll see you then, Pete. Uh, sure thing, tax man. Oh, something's gotta be done about that tax man. They say the only things that are certain in this life are death, taxes. And the tax man, he deals in both. Hmm. Well, um, not loving it. Really? 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I love tax men and I love Westerns. I looked over at you and you were on the edge of your seat and sweating. But maybe that was a medical condition. I'm <laughs> not sure. Just, I'm wearing a tie today and it's oh, a little hot in here. Um, not I, I. Plus, he's got all these stereotypes. He's got a little guy named Petey or whatever, and he's got they're using guns. I mean, I don't think that'll go over well. He keeps using derogatory terms of people from Chinese or from China. He doesn't call them Chinese. He calls them derogatory. I mean, it, I just don't think it's going to fly. Really? Yeah. So I think so far Bob Moss is the is the answer. Um, but let me ask you this. When else are you going to see an accountant do anything that exciting? Exactly. That's the point. <laughs> That's the point. So uh, just keep looking. Just keep looking. We got we got a little more time. Hmm. <sighs> I bet you didn't understand half of those terms, though. No. No, I mean I run a city and a radio show and a company. I don't And clearly you don't do the taxes. And I don't have a tax man from the 40s that's talking as if he were from the 1890s. Not to be rude. We'll take a break when we come back when we talk about humility. Your kids are in playing so many sports today. Wouldn't it be great if they could walk away with the virtue of humility? How do you inject humility? into sporting events. Interesting stuff up next. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, I have had, I have six kids, and each of my children have played sports. I think we have spent... Thousands of hours, I would say, uh, either watching or experiencing um, as they practice or play the sports. And wouldn't it be amazing if if they could take more away from their sports than just the game-winning touchdown, right? Or maybe going to play college ball, which so many parents are praying that their kids might get a chance to do. But uh, what if we could actually take away a trait, a virtue like humility from sports, Well, is it possible? According to our next guest, it is. Michael W. Austin is a professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University. Austin has published numerous books and journal articles relating to ethics, philosophy of religion, philosophy of the family, and of philosophy of sport. And he's here today to talk to us about a a blog entry that he had um, that he wrote about humility in sports. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be on. This is an interesting um, topic. I, I see so many parents saying they love their sports for their kids. It keeps them active, you know, and, and maybe someday they might play college ball or at the worst, they're, they're going to learn leadership skills. But you are pairing now the idea that maybe we could use sports to create more humility. Talk about that. Yeah, I think it's in some ways today it seems – counterintuitive to people because when we think of at least big-time sports, well, and even now, youth sports in many cases, there's a seems to be an overemphasis on winning, um, sort of about, you know, players that athletes that kind of glorify themselves or prop up their ego. Um, and so we think of sports as like trash-talking and getting in your face. Yeah. Um, to, really, to really win, you've got to be like this strong-willed, proud, brash person. Um, 
But I just think, I mean, historically, you can find some, some thoughts about what humility is, and philosophers of sport and others, psychologists, can see that, you know, humility actually has a role to play in sports, and so to really do it well, um, you need at least some degree of humility. Is, I mean, I, I guess, is it something we just need to start focusing more on? Um, it, because in your article, you bring up the fact that it is a natural part of sports because nothing's more humbling than being totally blown away by another team. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is we misunderstand what humility is. So a lot of people, and you know, I think this comes from the culture and even from some enlightenment views about humility, where it's sort of a, a self-denigration or a, you know, having a low view of yourself in an irrational way, right? At least from when you can go, come at it from a Christian perspective or even just from from psychological perspective, humility is more about, I think it's two things. It's having a proper view of yourself, right? That you, you kind of have a realistic view of your strengths and weaknesses. Also, you don't really focus on yourself as much. That's one part. The other part is really it's just an unselfishness. Um, it's a putting others ahead of yourself. So I've done a lot in the scholarly work to get that conception. But I think if we think of it that way and are intentional, uh, we can really display and cultivate humility in sports. Because it really does give you almost a daily opportunity to get a very realistic view of where you are, what you're good at. I mean, not everyone on the team can be the one scoring the touchdown. And um, that's got to be humbling. If you're the guy that wants a lot of praise and you're not getting praised because you're a lineman in Little League and they don't seem to get the praise that the quarterback does. I mean, it's funny in the pros – you know, a good a good tackle could be life saving to the game, um, but it it could foster humility. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you can see that in a lot of sports. I coach a girls' high school soccer team here, um, and one thing I've told some of the younger players or the players that just they're not as good um, that your role might be primarily this year to make the starters better, and you'll get some minutes, but that's a humbling thing too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I actually just met with my the senior yesterday. This makes me think of more of a kind of life lesson thing. One of them asked, asked me, is there going to be some kind of seniority thing about who has to, like, get water and clean up the cones and balls and stuff after practice? And I said, well, yeah, you know, we'll have the younger ones do that. But if you're going to be a leader as a senior, you need to do it, too. That's an idea of servant leadership. And you could just see her little light bulb click in her head. And so huh. a lot of it has to do with coaches, parents, but... I mean, it's a tough environment, um, so so we've got to be intentional. Is now? Do, do you sense? I mean, I, I get a I get a sense that most coaches really are out to just mold and and help build kids, um, kind of as as they're going through the years. Then eventually, you reach, I guess, professional kind of levels or higher competitive levels, and sometimes you can see egos, more and more egos creeping in. And um, is So how, if we wanted to create more humility in sports, and especially with our own children, I, I guess we can't just leave it up to the coaches. No, I think that's certainly true. And, and unfortunately, at least in my experience, um, even at the youth level, in middle school and high school, I mean, my... my Experience now is primarily with soccer, but I see a lot of coaches that seem to be in it for for their own ego there as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I think there's a lot of talk about building character, and sometimes I think it's 
I don't think it's necessarily an intentional dishonesty, but I think the natural focus kind of gets on winning and, you know, parents are going to complain. Why isn't my kid playing? So I actually think it starts with the coach having a bit of humility. That enables us to say, look, my ability as a coach doesn't solely depend on wins and losses. It depends on what we're doing in 5, 10, or 20 years even. Who, who are they? Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of what I think, yeah. No, that's – and that's and that actually – that's important. Yeah, you hear them talk a lot about, you know, we're building character, but it's almost like they just assume the fact that the character is going to be built naturally because they've made agreements, they show up, they work hard, they win and lose, and that will build a character. But you're saying if you wanted to take the virtue of um, of humility out of the – I mean, out of, and actually learn the virtue of humility while playing sports, it's going to have to be an intentional act. And you're going to have to start seeing it in every part of the game. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And so for us, there's actually some great resources for coaches and parents. I think of the Positive Coaching Alliance. Um, there's a few others that can give some like practical tips. But I, when I met with my players, I said, let's, let's, let's sit off three or four values about our, that we're going to care about as a team. Uh, one of the things is just becoming a better, not just a better player, but a better person. So I don't want to give long, moralistic sermons necessarily, but I'm just peppering in these ideas throughout the season um, and hoping that, you know, some of them I think will catch it. So, yeah, we've got to be intentional because the pressure today, parents, like you mentioned, parents think my kid's going to go to college on a scholarship, and, you know, 99 times out of 100, uh, it's just not going to happen. There just isn't that much money out there uh, yeah. for that. They'd be better, better served studying more. That's such. It's about physical health, you know, trying to develop a lifelong love for physical activity, kind of moral and intellectual development that's possible in sports. That's going to make a better, you know, long-term difference in the kid's life. No, absolutely. Let's do this. Let's take a break, Mike, and um, come back and start breaking it down. Where are the areas specifically that we could teach this idea of humility, this trait, this virtue, as we are uh, helping our kids get through their sporting activities. There's really a lot of intersections where, boy, it's a very important moment where humility can be obtained. Stick with us. Interesting insights about uh, your child, their sports, and you as a parent, too. How well are you modeling the virtue of humility when it comes to uh, watching sports as well? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show helping you uh, gather and gain some the virtue of humility one sporting event at a time. Stick with us. To the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about humility and, and uh, sports. How do you raise your children up and yourself and model for your children the great virtue of humility as, you, as they're participating in sports? What a great thing that can happen if we could actually help our child through, you know, f- your kid could end up playing 10 years of baseball and still never make a high school team. <laughs> Um, that's not even including getting into high school. You could be traveling all over in super leagues. But what if in the end they walked away from their sporting 
experience, not just with the supposed character that we think every child gets by playing sports or the leadership skills or the working well with other skills. What if we could walk away having them feel a a greater um, sense and connection to the trait and um, the virtue of humility? Well, here to talk about it is Mike Austin, and Mike is a professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University. He also uh, is a blogger on Psychology Today and um, talks a lot about humility and sports there. And we're honored to have you on the show, Mike. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It's been a good discussion. So when we talk about uh, – it's it's almost like there's moments. There's just tiny little – I always call them choice points or intersections – in the average, maybe, you know, uh, football game or football practice where we have a really important or powerful time to teach this virtue of humility. Some of those I know you, you've listed in your article, but one of them that you brought up that I think is so important with sports it, that would foster humility is the fact that you understand and you learn to appreciate your limits, because you yeah. you really realize that you can only do so much, and um, talk about how we could teach the virtue of humility by helping our kids just understand their limits. Yeah, I think you know a kid can see their limits, and uh, like we'll take a football, you know, example. No matter how good you are, right? There's no perfect player, so you're going to have limits. There's things you can and can't do, and so I think we can. You know, we can challenge a kid to, you know, our our son or daughter playing football or soccer, whatever it is, to to really take risks and find out where those limits are and develop, but to understand and appreciate them. Right, that's part of being on a team. So if I'm look at if it's a football game and I'm a wide receiver, my kid's a wide receiver, but the other one is a lot faster and it's the end of the game. Want to throw the deep ball to the faster kid, better chance of getting open. Um, but then it's finding out, well, what can I do using my ability to help the team win, right? So the, the humility comes in not just understanding your limits and figuring out how to use your strengths to help the team. And then mm. you've got that that team, you know, that sort of almost a cliche, the team comes before the individual, but this is a way to really put some, you know, uh, get that where the rubber meets the road, right? Make right. it real and, pra- real and practical. And it doesn't so mean you're useless. It doesn't mean you're a waste. It just means you understand where you fit and where you fit most effectively for the team. Yes, that's right. And you see this even in the you know the NBA or NFL players that are role players, right? Special teams player in the NFL that can make a difference or the NBA player who comes on for 10 or 20 minutes a game. Uh, but oftentimes the difference between a championship and not as those players right mm. when you get to the end of the season all, most of the teams have stars it's that second tier uh, that can make a difference you've also teach our kids that then and, and they can put that in other parts of their life then i think we can really we can help them build character oh yeah and then all of a sudden they, they'd be able to do that in a work environment you know you know on a medical team or wherever they choose to work someday another point you bring up where humility is a great you know teaching moment is in accepting instruction and um being corrected and allowing the allowing your coaches and leaders to correct you um because there's there are proper ways to do stuff and there's 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 not so proper ways to do stuff yeah that's right and so you know we use words like a kid being teachable or coachable but I think what those words get at is that it's a, a little picture of humility, right? If I can 
realize this is, I see my limits as a player or I'm doing something wrong, I ex- accept the instruction and then I, I try to work on it. Now, coaches need to do it in the right way in ways that are, you know, respectful and encouraging and helpful. That's a separate issue. But, but in general, if a kid really gets into a sport, I mean, you can't play a sport without, you know, learning how to do it better, playing within the rules and all those things involve an element of humility, I think. Yeah, you even talk about the fact that uh, officiating, and you've officiated before a lot of the times, and this is where the parents could gather and gain some humility. A lot of times the parents who aren't seeing it from the right or the same angle as you are, they don't understand the call. They may not even know the rules, but they're arguing with you, and they don't even know the rules. Yeah, that's right. And I'm I'm sure that's it's probably still true in other sports like football and basketball, but in soccer, I think it's even more true because it's just most of us, you know, parents didn't grow up playing it yeah. um, or were less familiar with it. And so, yeah, I've experienced that as an official, as a parent, um, as an official, I've been yelled at about <laughs> what the rules are and it's like the, and they're just the exact opposite is the rules. So, yeah. Yeah. Parents you- can do a lot to ruin an experience or make it good. And a lot of it would just be, being quiet and trying to be positive about your kids and lightening up, but yeah. that can be hard. Well, you also have in soccer the ever-elusive offsides call, which I think yeah. only one in one million people understand. And yeah, so, you know right. what I mean? And and then as a as a referee or a, yeah, as a referee, you're, 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 you have a completely different angle than the parents that are sitting, you know, 30 yards behind. And it, it's just, but what's what it is, is it's almost like, we have this immediate confidence that you are wrong. You are so yeah. wrong. And there is a humility to this. Even if you're wrong, I had the, I mean, I've had officials just in little basketball games know that they were wrong and, you know, stop the game and go fix the call. And it was, it's really powerful. I've also seen parents go off when the referee wasn't wrong. And one of the referees just stopped, took his whistle off and walked it over and handed it to the parents. Said, do you want to do this? <laughs> And it was yeah, it, honestly, good. it created a very humbling moment. And the and the father just said, "No, no, you're doing great. Keep going." And but it, it, there is something about our own our own view as a parent that might be ruining it for the child. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a lot of stories of of teams, you know, disbanding because of you know the, the stuff parents say and do, and kids' experiences being ruined. I think we have fewer kids. This, this is more anecdotal, like. A lot of them stop around thirteen or fourteen because they've just had enough. Yeah, um, and that should and that should be just when they're they're putting the you know they're getting it all together and really excelling in their sports. So if we could if we could just make it more positive and uh, look, I mean I'm, I do work in ethics, so in some ways it's idealistic, but we don't have to be perfect, but we just have to be kind of moving in the right direction, and things could be a lot better. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the things that worries me as a father is I watch my kids as they watch the pros. And, you know, it's almost sometimes if what matters more is the flair with which you make the basket versus or the humility or the the humiliation that you can thrust upon your opponent is more valuable than the actual game or the winning of the game. Like these kids now have the crossover dribble. And if they can have the air quote, break your ankle crossover that makes the the defender fall, that is just as valuable, even if they don't make the basket as making the basket. Right. Yeah. So just that in some ways that it's humility and it's tied in just to basic respect. And I think, yeah, we've sort of encouraged this, 
like a one-upmanship, right? I've got, it's hard enough just to beat you or even not even make the basket, like you said, but just somehow humiliate somebody else, right? To, yeah. to really lessen them or denigrate them by my actions or attitudes. And it's kind of like when with the dunks in basketball and there's a player, I mean, I've seen this numerous times, right? There's a player underneath and you just kind of hang there on him. And just sort of the stuff that, you know, they weren't perfect 50 years ago, but, but they were, you know, th- that wasn't as common as it is now. Yeah. Um, what can I do as a parent to um, to help my child, you know, humbly accept a loss or humbly accept a win? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I think a parent's natural tendency, often in a loss, can be to blame the official or the coach or the other you know other players on your team. But sometimes it's just saying, you know, you're, either your team didn't play as well as you could today, right? That's just the reality of it. And without getting on, on the kid about it or criticizing him or her, you know, you just got beat today. The other team outplayed you. Um, you played your best and they were better, right? It's just a realistic diagnosis of what's going on without shifting the blame, right? Just accepting the fact that you got beat that day and helping your child to do that is one thing. With the win, it's realizing that, I mean, you know, there every sport has an element of chance, right? And so there's all, you know, there's always a, it could go either way. Uh, so trying to win humbly and graciously, appreciating the, the contest your opponent gave you, right? We need our opponents to play the sport. Right? That's what helps us get better. We prepare and try to try to beat our opponent. Um, and so if we can have that, see it as sort of this mutual quest to get better as we try, as we go after wins and losses, um, rather than a contest of who's better than who in some sort of egotistical way, that can make a big difference. I yeah, think. no, absolutely. As we um, as we kind of wrap it up, what I always like to do is is ask the one thing, Michael. What's the one thing that you would think would go the farthest uh, in helping our children actually start connecting the trait and the virtue of humility to their sporting activity? Yeah, I would. I think I would start, with, or I would focus on what it means to be part of a team. Um, and that involves cooperation, right? Playing your role, whether it's the, you're at the top of the heap or the bottom, um, but really trying to figure out what you can do to make the team better. Um, for some kids, that means doing most of the scoring. For others, it means playing a small role. For others, it means just making them better at practice. But but tying it in with being a good teammate, you know, even individual sports, it's related because you know track and field is still a team, for example. Right. Um, That's powerful. Uh, yeah, I think that's where I'd start. Yeah, and no, I agree, Mike. That's great. And there's just so much to this about relationships, about team, about your own self-confidence. I mean, too, with each one of these, you can't put yourself down either. You can't blame yourself, you know, indefinitely for the free throw that you miss. There is just a point where you've got to learn to humble yourself and take it as a learning. Um, powerful stuff. We appreciate the, the time with you. Michael W. Austin, again, is a, a, a blogger on Psychology Today. You can find him there, as well as all of the, the wonderful books he's written and, and insights he has. Go check him out. Look up Psychology Today, and you'll get straight to him. Uh, and Or just tweet him, at, doc, at Michael, Wa, Michael W. Austin, at Michael W. Austin. We will take a break, my friends. Come back, continue the journey, helping you be the best you can be. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little empty news for you as we wrap up hour number two of the program. And happy Lumpy Rug Day. Again, the day we celebrate those little lumps in your rug that say, ugh, you're probably going to have to fix that. Also, if you're wearing a hairpiece that just doesn't seem to sit right, maybe it's time to get it refitted. Hey, um, a mystery in Virginia. Someone is shaving other people's cats. Why would someone go around shaving other people's cats, you ask? The mystery has the attention of police in Waynesboro, a small city in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, where someone has been taking cats and precisely shaving their underbellies or legs. It's uh, happened to seven cats since December. It's a cat thief. Police Captain Kelly Walker said Friday that all the cats have been returned otherwise unharmed, but uh, obviously bothered and humiliated by their new do. Walker says all the cats clearly had uh, owners. They were well-groomed, wearing collars. He says police aren't sure what crime has been committed, but the owners would just like it to stop. Here's some live audio from a group of cats that were gathered to, uh, to exercise their right to voice frustration about the cat clippings. Sad. They're sad cats. Until they hold a little hat in their paws and do the big doe eyes, yeah. then I'm shaving them. <laughs> so are you the guy doing this? You running so around they- with your clippers? But once they pull out those doe eyes and yeah. hold a little cap in their hand, in their yeah, paws, yeah. then I'm 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 melting. You know what gets me, and it's the same picture. But if you zoom, whoa, that one really doesn't want to be shaved. That's an angry cat that seems to have a vocabulary like a human. <laughs> um, I like I, anytime a cat wears boots. That I I just can't get enough of. I love that. That last one was actually audio of your granddaughter. Yeah. She's a doll. Um, So watch out if you're in Virginia. Somebody may be shaving your cat uh, without permission. Um, So be careful there. Police uh, in um, Cleveland are trying to identify a woman that they say pulled a gun on a barber because he was taking too long to cut her seven-year-old son's hair. Mm. Holy cow. Cleveland.com says um, a police report – on Cleveland.com, I guess you can find a police report that says a woman um, was th- threatened the barber at a barber school on April 14th. By the way, on, at a school? Barber school. They're learning. Hey, you, I, I'm just taking, I just want to get this right. I want to get it right. I'm sorry, that's one of the places you don't want to be rude to the person performing right. a service. They're already get nervous. a straight blade. <laughs> Ooh. Police say the woman complained several times before pulling a handgun from her purse and pointing it at the barber, telling him, I got two clips. I'll pop you. And then the barber said, I've got a set of clippers right here myself. (laughs) You call those clips? (laughs) (laughs) The police say the woman put the gun back after another employee came over to calm her down. The barber was able to finish the haircut and the woman left with her two children afterward. Wow. Was she arrested? Apparently not. Huh. Just a report filed. I think all the the uh, hairstylists there were like, oh, yeah, we've all been there. We get it. You get two kids. You got yeah. places you got to be. Hey, you gotta, yeah, you're good. Put the gun away. We're all good. And how about this? A 59-year-old flower shop owner has been arrested for allegedly stealing plants and other items from graves at a New Jersey cemetery. 
Apparently, she would go steal uh, the plants and stuff from the First Reformed Church Cemetery in New Jersey, and then she would sell them again in her store. Despicable. Yeah. Detectives checked out surveillance footage and saw the woman approach the mausoleum in a silver minivan, get out of the vehicle, and take the plants. Authorities were able to identify the suspect as Linda Wingate, former police dispatcher and flower shop owner. She was arrested on charge of theft of movable property and released released pending an appearance in municipal court. Then apparently she'd clean up the old flowers from the graves and then she would resell them in her store. See, that's just so sad that her business is doing that poorly that she feels like she has to do that. Well, and then all of a sudden you buy flowers at her store. Then they disappear at the cemetery, and then you come back, and they're there. Like, I didn't, hey, that's, no, that's, that was my Uncle Leo. This sounds like a great movie idea. Like, the spirits of these uh, loved ones who have passed are now in the flowers, and then people are buying them and taking them home with them. Yeah, now now you're taking it too far. Yeah, Mm. you 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 just took that too far. But, I mean, I'm not. But in a good way, right? Yeah, you took it too far in a good way. (laughs) And stuff. Anyway, we'll take a break, folks. Shaman. Shaman. We'll take a break, and when we come back, continue the journey, helping you be the good you can be. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The program where we give you the latest, the greatest information you need from the, you know, from those that have been studying it, researching it, writing about it to make your life better. And we do it every day, three hours a day, nine to noon Eastern time. If you have, if, if you just happened upon us, you can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn. Go to byuradio.org. We're everywhere. Look us up on Facebook, on Twitter at Doctor at Doctor Matt Show. What are some of the best things you've ever happened upon? Other than you guys. That was nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. I almost believed it. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean happened upon? Like a $100 bill. You said if you happen upon the show. So you happened upon a $100 bills? Yeah, have you? I That hap- probably happened upon a, a $20 bill. No, that happened. I Somebody had put – somebody had given me an envelope somewhere. No, that was $200. $200 in it and I – it was in a coat that I hadn't worn forever. And I know. I you, happened upon it. You were very vocal about that Is that, that morning. Is that where you store your bribes? Just in your, your coat like that? Bribes? Yeah. What, what on earth do you mean? I'm just saying it kind of felt like it was a bribe. It's kind of a brag, too. It's As brag. I recall, you were fanning yourself with it. Yeah. You, were, true, you were rubbing the sweat off your face with them. And I was sweaty that day. I need. We you were, were out of wringing Kleenexes. them out. Yeah, we were out of Kleenexes, and those have the extra fibers in them. They do, so that it makes it easier to wipe your sweat with. Then you threw them out in front of us. No, I didn't. I kept. Them. That's how much You're they like, meant to you. I don't mean. I don't them. need these. I have so many at home. Oh, <laughs> you gosh. Just toss it away. Left and right. 
yeah, we'll get to all that. Hey, uh, by the way, that was an example of Paranormal Day. Hmm. It was given to me by a chupacabra. With uh, that was smothered, a sm- smothered chupacabra. Um, I think you think that's with chimichanga and sour cream. Yeah. So Paranormal Day means today's the day you get to celebrate all of the um, undo- or the documented scary things that have happened in your life or undocumented even. If you've seen a UFO, today's the day you talk about it. Ghosts, if you've got them, who are you going to call? Matt Townsend. <laughs> Share it today. Talk about it. If you if you have the elusive chupacabra from South America or Mexico, right? Maybe you you can talk about it now. If you've seen the chupacabra, if it, you know, if it's snuck up and started gnawing on your leg. Those things or, are slippery when wet or uh, smothered. I think you're you're thinking of a chimichanga. Oh, okay. A smothered chimichanga. Do they exist? Of course they do. And so today, of all the days, you can talk about the paranormal events of your life. You can talk about, you know, when you woke up in a grain field somewhere in the Midwest. In a crop circle. In a crop circle. Today's the day you talk about it. And again, we always remind you that even though today is the day you get to talk about it, there is always tomorrow Mm. when everyone's going to be talking about you. So be careful. But share your paranormal events today. It's also Lumpy Rug Day, and we're going to turn it over to Jeff now to explain exactly what is a lumpy rug. Jeff? A lumpy rug? I thought we've already covered this uh, ad nauseum on the show. You don't know, do you? Okay. A lumpy rug is when, uh, you know, you're in a home that has some paranormal activity going on. (laughs) Exactly. You don't know. Lumpy Rug Day it really isn't even, it's not even, it doesn't pertain to us anymore. But back in the day, you would, you'd start having threads pulled in your, lu- in your rug and it would create a lump in the rug and you'd have to have it fixed. And now the, we just toss everything. In the really rich homes, they were constantly spilling their lumps of sugar and they were falling underneath the rugs. Creating, thus creating a lumpy rug. Yeah. So happy lumpy rug day today. It's also for those uh, sporting a toupee. Um, or hairpiece, it's time to get the sugar cube out from underneath it. Where else are you going to keep those? you got to store them somewhere. <laughs> I love a really warm sugar cube. Anywho, uh, we'll get to all that fun today. Plus, we also, we've also we got a, a replay show we're going to be doing about if, if you seem to be indecisive, you can't quite make a decision, there is a formula for destiny, the destiny formula, choosing the right direction in life, how to know which way is right for you. And so we've got a great guest that will walk us through um, that discussion in a few minutes. Plus, of course, we'll be visiting with the Good Brethren from BYU Sports Nation, find out what they're talking about on their show. It's kind of a little moment for us to, to get ready for the top of the hour because at the top of the hour, it's all sports. And we just like to – We I always like to ask them other sporting uh, questions as well. So we'll get to be able to cover all of that. Plus, um, we'll be talking about some vultures. Mm. What Would would you worry about 100 vultures sitting on the fence of your kid's schoolyard? Like what? they're just waiting mm. for someone to go down. Yeah, because they usually – they're waiting for something. They usually yeah. hang out in a specific area for a reason. Yeah. And they just talk to each other. Like sometimes there's geese that hang out at my kid's school because right. there's the big grass Which, area. That's Which not is a fine. problem. Geese, yeah. who cares? I mean, they're but, dirty. But vultures. 
Vultures are different. I thought this was going to lead into one of those questions of would you rather fight a hundred mice-sized vultures or one elephant-sized vulture? Mouse. Oh. You did. Oh, I did it wrong. Wrap it back. But. That's all right. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's not. It's not that. It's, it's okay. But a mom got worried because vultures, you know, are known to pick at carcasses. Pick at carcasses, yeah. and there's a lot of little carcasses out there. Well, well soon to be kids. potential carcass carci. Oh, that's a negative. Carci. Carci is carci. Mm-hmm. That's the plural. Yeah. Okay. I, well, yeah. That's I looked it up. It's carci. Okay. Um, so the mom had to do something. We'll, we'll talk about what she ended up doing. We'll also do a hero story. And Did she always, shoo him away? She's like, shoo, 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 you vultures. vultures. <laughs> she just called, you vultures make me sick. Whoa. And then she pulled out a whip and whipped him. Great, uh, great, all these great stories straight ahead. But let's first get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? If changes aren't made by the next hearing, I can assure you, you won't like the outcome. This is from Representative Bill Schuster. He told representatives from four U.S. airlines Tuesday, United, Alaska, American, and Southwest were being questioned by the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee following last month's incident in which a doctor was dragged off a flight. Uh, Other U.S. airlines were invited to the hearing but did not show up. Schuster, the committee's chairman, called those that did attend the brave few. Lawmakers are threatening to take legislative action against airlines of the customer experience, which one Democrat representative says is currently terrible. If it doesn't improve, they will find some legislation. Specifically at issue airlines policies around overbooking and bumping passengers. Representative Elizabeth Etsy says lawmakers are looking for assurances from airlines so that legislation uh, solution is not necessary. Huh. They also yeah. said, how is it that you're taking advice from us on customer service? Oh, that's the, Us, great. the U.S. Congress. Yes. Who no one likes. Well, and honestly, I don't know if how often we win when Congress gets involved. Right. It seems like I mean, it's for show. Because and- some of the rules that created the very incident itself were created by past Congresses that right. had... And- Lobbying efforts from the airlines. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. The Hotel California in Baja, California, Mexico might be a lovely place, but it's not the one referred by the uh, Eagles song, the 1976 Eagles track by the same name, (laughs) Hotel California. As a result, the band is suing the hotel for actively encouraging guests to believe it is the inescapable residence referenced in Hotel California. This according to the BBC. Online reviews of the 11-room Mexican hotel complain that guests are misled into believing they are visiting the inspiration for the Eagles song. This is not the hotel they are singing about, and once you enter the hotel, you can read the pamphlets with the history of the hotel, and they will tell you the same thing, one reviewer wrote. Another complained the association often made between this hotel and the Eagles song of the same name is not supported in fact, only implied. While the hotel was originally named the Hotel California in 1950, when it was opened, its name was changed several times before a Canadian couple restored it in 2001 when they assumed ownership. The hotel pictured on the cover of the Eagles album is the Beverly Hills Hotel, and the band claims the song is not about any specific place. So they're suing because people are being misled. Oh, boy. What do you think? Sue, I guess. Everyone wants to sue. Finally, Skippy Peanut Butter has been yanked out of the Canadian marketplace by parent company Hormel, whose spokesman laments that the incredibly difficult decision to discontinue the brand there, leaving just a few, if any, jars on store shelves, which, of course, is causing a run on Skippy Peanut Butter. Why? They say it's difficult to distribute across a country 
that is so wide but has very few – a relatively small population of 36 million people. Yeah. So it's like little outposts of places where they deliver. It's not like, like mass distribution yeah. is difficult. So because of that, they're pulling back. There might be some other issues that they're Can't you just order – can't they order Skippy on Amazon? Well, they are and that's the problem. A container on Amazon's Canadian site can go from $7 oh, wow. for a 12-ounce jar to nearly $40 for a 40-ounce jar of the natural version. There's gold in them there, Also, nuts. there's a reduced-fat version that's been <laughs> seen with a price tag of nearly $100 for just a normal-sized jar. Oh, now, the question yeah. is, why couldn't they just you know, include them in the shipping for you? Because they're near the U.S. border. Why right. can't that? And what they're saying is um, the nutritional information reveals that uh, some, what some people suspect the U.S. version has more sugar in it than the Canadian one. So the Canadians want their version of the peanut butter, not ours. Of ours course. is too sweet. We're budget They just gluttons. need to skip on over to Peter Peter Pan peanut butter. Hmm. Ever had pl- Peter? Was, it, was that a play on words? People want Skippy. It was. Skip on over to Peter Pan peanut butter. So it's also a tongue twister. Um, boy, that's I feel bad for Canada. They're okay. No, but this is a big deal. This is I eat toast and peanut butter every bre- every morning. Mm. I'd be so sad. Well, there's other brands. I mean, you know, there are plenty of other nuts in Canada. Ha <laughs> ha. Will you quit offending our Canadian audience? There's the stir type of peanut butter where you have to like get the oils all no. back. No, they're a little stir the, crazy over there. There's the non-stir. There's the powdered form of peanut butter. If you've seen that, no. Yeah, I've I'm going to go it. powder my nose. That's not for your nose. It's beta butter. Okay. Interesting stuff. Did you hear about the uh, baby humpback whale? Uh, Apparently, this is a really cool story. Baby humpback whales whisper to their mothers to avoid being overheard by hungry orcas. What? Be very, very quiet. (laughs) They're very quiet. Newborn humpbacks have learned to communicate with their mothers using intimate grunts. So they're being hunted. Yeah, by orcas. Those wascoey whales. Can you, can you, because you're really good at sound effects, can you, um, I, help me understand, just give me an intimate grunt. Just give me one intimate grunt. Was that it? Yeah. That doesn't sound very intimate. But they're finding out that quiet communication reduces the chances of being overheard by killer whales, and somehow instinctively these baby humpback whales will then communicate quietly. What? Isn't that neat? So what is that? That tells you that you can get your kids to be quiet, that you need an orca. Hmm. So I can never get my kids to communicate quietly. Like we're sitting in church and they're constantly making noise. And usually it's my younger kids, like my 12-year-old, my 13-year-old, 14-year-old. But this last time it was my 20-year-old, 21-year-old is opening a fruit roll-up in church. That's it. And just unwinding a fruit roll-up and eating it. And I'm like, son, no. Put the roll-up down. Maybe you need to start speaking some whale to him. I know. What we need is an orca. So it's just interesting, isn't it, that a baby orca and a mom, they communicate. They they have a lot of other sounds. They use rubbing sounds like two balloons being rubbed together, which we think was the calf nudging its mother when it wanted to nurse. This is them. Like they, all you need to do is put a microphone 
on a baby whale. I mean, how hard of research is this? Just mic up a baby whale. Yeah. And they did it. And they heard all of these incredible things, including the whisper. Be very, very quiet. That we heard the mother say that to the baby whale. I heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I also heard, I need to lose a few pounds. Yeah. Did you see that? Do I look fat in this blubber? Yeah. Great stuff. Uh, we will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about and helping you navigate through life. How do you know which direction to take in life when there's so many choices? Uh, stick with us. A wonderful replay interview on that topic. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, life is full of big decisions, isn't it? And uh, we gotta we gotta make the biggest of all decisions. You know, day in, day out, we're constantly choosing um, how to get through the day, how to prioritize stuff, how to figure out where you fit and what you should do. So, you know, we wanted to bring in an expert that could help us. Uh, get better results from our choices so that we're ending up having the best possible situations in life. Sometimes, you know, it's indecise, It's our indecisiveness that, that also gets in the way. So we uh, there's a book called The Destiny Formula, Choosing the Right Direction in Life, and it is written by our guest who's joining us right now, IODJ Awosika joins us, and he's going to walk us through some of the top 10 ways to make good decisions in life. IODJ, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Talk to me about um, decision-making and, and, and how you got into this, this field of helping people make better decisions. Um, well, I think decisions are definitely kind of the blueprint of what either makes your life good or makes your life bad. So uh, every day we're faced with different decisions every week, every month, and every year. And if you kind of move through time and look back on the quality of your life as it stands right now, ultimately it will come down to all the choices that you've made in the past. So I kind of got into this field uh, of writing, guiding, instructing, because I wanted to help point people in the right direction. Hmm. And, uh, a lot of the readers I have, the thing that they struggle with most is, uh, you know, picking out of so many different options that we have available. I mean, it's a really, a really great time that we're in right now, and there's yeah. plenty of opportunities in the world, but it can almost be crippling as opposed to, like, liberating to have so many choices, and sometimes... Yeah, we have an nothing. abundance, huh? Yeah, we have, we're almost overwhelmed, inundated by choices. Absolutely. You put together the destiny formula. I guess as part of the formula, uh, t- talk to us about about how you came up with the formula. What is the destiny formula? Okay, so yeah, the the formula I came up with uh, was drawn from a lot of the different things that I like to read and just my own experience in life that helped me find the path of uh, becoming a writer, becoming a blogger, and helping other people um, be encouraged and motivated 
Uh, so the beginning of it is kind of looking into your past and looking into your childhood and just kind of going back and seeing what you're naturally drawn to. I think uh, a lot of people kind of have this thing in their minds that they have no idea what they're passionate about, but I don't think that's true. Hmm. I think there's things that we're naturally drawn to all the time, and if you just take some time to be conscious about it and kind of look at some of the things that you've done in your past and even stuff that you do on a day-to-day basis, you'll realize that uh, there are several things that you're passionate about. So I went into my past, and ever since I was a little kid, you know, I wrote poems, I was in spelling bees, so there was just this thing about words, hmm. of the, the power they have, that kind of <clears throat> that kind of got me attracted to it. And I offhandedly, you know, mentioned several times that I wanted to be a writer, but I never really put it all together that, you know, kind of my calling, so to speak, was right in front of me. So that's <clears throat> that's kind of the process that I used to to figure it out. And it's, it's something that I've learned from other areas to kind of look back. And I sat back and thought about what do I what do I think about most? What I, what am I drawn to most? And and that's where the whole writing thing came in. It's, and that's kind of the first piece yeah. of figuring out what you should be doing going forward. Well, and it is. I mean, just, I guess, come to know yourself. What are you, if you have a second to do something, what would you like to go do? What drives your your passion? I think that's that's huge. And then what's great for you is that we now are in this blogging world where writing you don't have to just write books. You can, but you can also start with just a blog and start sharing your passion and the things you, you love to do. Um, you In one of your blog entries, and um, it was uh, on Huffington Post as well, you talked about 10 w- useful ways to help us choose the right direction in life without wasting a bunch of time. Give us a few of those um, while we have some time before the break. Uh, what what are some of the the rules you give people to kind of get moving in life. Okay, so I think one of the the most quick and easy to implement kind of magic bullets is using a 90-day sprint plan. So let's say you're someone like me and you're thinking about this whole writing thing, thinking about this blogging thing, but you're not really sure and you don't want to be like super committed to doing it. I would suggest using that 90-day time frame to learn more about writing and blogging actually write and put your blog out there. And I think if you if you write on a consistent basis for 90 days, it's going to be pretty apparent to you if, if it's something that you like doing or mm. not. I think setting that benchmark of the 90 days is an easier way to kind of go in a direction, see if it works, and then decide if you want to move forward. Because I think people get tied down to the whole aspect of that commitment where they feel like they have to go all in on everything. And I think the best way to actually choose a direction is to make small goals, small opportunities that you're looking into, and then just give it a trial run for a while. If not, maybe you were, you know, close to what it was, but it's a little different. Like, for example, one of the avenues um, I learned through taking some different strengths tests was uh, to be in journalism. And I quickly, you know, just after doing some research about it, decided that I didn't want to go into that range and I wanted to move kind of towards the author blogger range. And hmm. It's kind of in the same broad category, but you can you can go in a certain direction and you might be close, but maybe it's, you know, not exactly what you were looking for. So at the end of that 90 days, you can review, see, you know, what you thought it was going to be like 
and then what it actually turned out to be, and then it's easier to make a decision going forward after that. Right. And that's a great way to do it because what's 90 days, right? Test it. You got life. You've got time. Figure it out. Yeah, and it's easy, it's easy to do in, in 90 days because, you know, there's not that commitment. And I think, you know, the irony in people not wanting to make decisions or not trying to do new things is that you'll spend, you know, 10 years, you know, not making a decision as to what you want to do. And then you kind of fall under the influence of whatever you happen to be doing, like a job. Maybe you don't like just to pay the bills, but you haven't made a decision to do anything else. So you're kind of stuck in that same place. And Mm. the longer you stay stuck and don't try new things, the harder it is to get out of it. So I'm definitely one for experimenting as much as possible. So you have four different you have four different things you could try in a, in a span of a year. So that's 40 different things in 10 years. And I, I feel like if you bounce around long enough, you'll definitely definitely find something that yeah. you want to pursue. You'll also there. narrow it down, right? You'll get closer yeah. and closer to what you like. And um, it, I mean, it really is. It's it's just it's just kind of take it on and, and start testing stuff. Let's take a break um, and, and come back and continue to discuss this with Io. He, um, again, has a website, a great website, thedestinyformula.com, where you can read his blog and find out uh, about his uh, ultimate reading list and other great tools on there. We'll come back and continue to discuss 10 useful ways to choose the right direction in life. Stick with us, folks, helping you uh, lead your life to a healthier, happier place. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. If you feel overwhelmed or even underwhelming yourself because you just don't know which direction to take in your life, you might want to go check out thedestinyformula.com or get the book, The Destiny Formula, Choosing the Right Direction in Life. It's written by Iodiji Awosika, and he's the author and also a blogger on the site and is here today to talk to us about an article he wrote about uh, 10 useful ways to choose the right direction. Um, Io, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. And um, one of the things you've been teaching us is sometimes you just got to get started and try some stuff, take a little 90-day test. You also mentioned that you should kind of go with what you like to do, but I guess simultaneously you can start with what you hate. That was one of the things you mentioned in your 10 useful uh Uh, ways to choose the right direction is sometimes it's easier to know what you don't like than it is to know what you do like. Absolutely. And I actually learned about that concept from um, a guy named Charlie Munger. He's the uh, vice chairman of a large investing company. And he talked about the process of inversion. So, you know, a lot of people go out and they're looking for like what they should do. But he said the best way to figure out how to live a successful life is just to look at everything uh, that will lead to failure and just avoid that. Hmm. And that's a that's a good way I think to look at to look at what you do on your path or what you do for a living. So like if you're if you're the type of person who hates you know being behind a desk, maybe look for a job where you can be out interacting with people or doing something else. And I think a lot of people will settle for jobs that they really dislike just for the pay. And I don't even think that you need to 
do a complete overhaul of your life to start moving in the right direction. But at the very least, you don't have to do things that you despise doing. Like, for example, I back a couple of years ago when I was, you know, not in a great place, I worked in an electronics factory for 12 hours a day mm. with these people who, you know, they're, there's basically death on their faces because they just, <laughs> they're trapped. Know, what, yeah, they're just trapped and hated what they're doing. So I feel like if you, if you go a long time and you really are not feeling it, you need to, at least if you can't make that transition right away, at least start thinking of other ways that you can change, mm. maybe applying for a new place while you're at your old place, you know, working on your side business or side project while you're still doing your job. So I definitely, I'm definitely a big believer in avoiding things that you hate, you know, yeah. that's it. to spend time doing that. Well, and that's a great, it's great advice. I have a son that, um, he really is kind of more of a healer type of personality. He'd be a great therapist probably, or, um, a coach or a teacher or something, but he has friends that are all salespeople and they keep trying to sell him on being a door-to-door salesman and, you know, just for the summer. And the funny thing is, is he, he actually gets sold every time. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. And then he gets into it a little bit and he, he keeps forgetting what he's really good at. So he, he, we just all, all of us need to remember what we don't like doing and what we, we do like doing. Another thing you talk about um, that might help is interviewing people that are, I guess, in the job, you, you suggest go interview 10 people who are already doing what you want to do. Yeah, and the thing about it is um, it's, not, it's not that hard to reach out to people, even if, you know, what you're pursuing is, you know, something maybe others consider lofty. Like if you're trying to be a popular blogger or author, actually, if you reach out to these people, it, they'll more than likely respond because a lot of people who are, in a position of, you know, success, realize where they came from. So they're usually, uh, you know, if they have the time, they're more than willing to kind of talk to you about what it's like and, you know, really really ask them questions. Don't just ask them, you know, what the good parts about it are. Ask them what they struggle with. Ask them, you know, some of the challenges that come along with it. You yeah. know, people are people and people like to, especially when they're in a higher position, people like to share advice. Everybody likes to, you know, give their two cents and share some wisdom with some somebody who's, you know, a little behind on the path. So there's, it's very easy to reach out to ten people and you know ask them, and it'll, it can really give you a clear idea of if it's something you want to pursue even right then and there. Like maybe you talk to some of them and they all are facing similar things that you don't that you don't think would work for you. So then that's a, another way to eliminate things without even, you know having to go through the 90-day sprint. So yeah. interviewing people is definitely a great way to, to get the information from people who are actually doing it. Do you um, – I know one of the things that you talk about a lot is um, kind of the worldview statement. Now, I, I used to kind of call that a mission statement, but what, what do you mean by create a worldview statement? So yeah, the worldview, the worldview statement is just like what you believe about the world that, you know, so I put it – as uh, I actually got this from another uh, successful author, Jeff Goins, and it's that, you know, all blank should blank. So it's just kind of your your kind of motto as to what constitutes, you know, maybe a successful life or a way to live a good life. And you, for mine, you know, I put all people should, you know, use their natural talents and strengths to be a successful person. Because I think um, not only does 
going with your strengths help you feel more fulfilled, it's it'll help you actually advance. You know, a good way a good way to stay broke and unhappy is to do things you're not good at. And there's a lot of people who are doing things that they're not good at and it's and it's not rewarding for them. And I think, you know, regardless of what your worldview is, you just don't want to be a vanilla person. You don't want to be a lukewarm person. You want to be you want to have some kind of way you see the world and so that you can find other people who feel the same way and, you know, find like minded people and, and you help them build community that way. Mm, yeah. No, that's great. I mean and to have kind of a concept a uh, uh I think it was Nietzsche. Somebody said it's easier to say yes when you ha- – it's easier to say no when you have a deeper yes burning inside. So sometimes you need to know what your your deeper yeses are or you really can't – you can't sort through the million choices we've got to make. Yeah, and I mean even take, I mean, take you for example. Like just from what I can tell, I mean I can't say maybe your statement verbatim, but it seems like you're the type of person who believes that all people – should strive to use communication to build strong relationships. Yeah, no, exactly. Leaders. So you can you can kind of see your worldview statement behind the actions and behind the things you do with your with your show and your coaching and your products, you know, to help people build better relationships and become leaders. So all that comes out from, you know, if you were just a person who didn't care about anything and didn't have any view, you know, it would be hard for you to come up with something Right, as great as you have right now. Well, and and it, and I guess the, the neat thing about life too is, as you go and as you age, and more things happen to you, your your life view can tighten up, and you know can maybe even become elevated and higher and higher. And I mean, the key is, wouldn't it be great? And this is, I guess, key to what you're teaching us is to be able to tell our children in a line what we're about, you know, and and yeah. and be able to then from that line that they could go back and look at our lives and say, holy cow, dad became what he said was important. I mean, that's really what this is about. Yeah, and I think people are really worried about, you know, kind of the fear of missing out things. So they don't want to pick, they don't want to pick a direction. They don't want to pick a stance because, you know, they feel like they'll be closed off to other options. But, you know, my... My worldview statement is, you know, using the natural talents and strengths to be successful. And I also like to use words to impact people. So whether it's, you know, speaking uh, on shows like this or writing or writing more books or blogging, like I'm, I'm in that same, that same lane and I can continue to hone my voice and hone my words so that, you know, if I'm on a specific path for a long time, you know, the, the skills keep increasing and, and it's not scattered. So once you find... Once you find that position, you know, after, you know, whatever length of period you need that self-discovery. But, you know, when you're pretty sure, you can continue to go forward and, you know, every decision you make can go through that prism. So it's not, it's not hard to, it's not hard to live. So, like, if I, if I'm looking for a, a new opportunity and, you know, it's something that is not aligned with my strengths, not that you want to avoid everything that you're bad at and not, you know, sure of some of those weaknesses, but if it's really not in my wheelhouse, you know, it's not going to help me in my ultimate mission. Mm. So it's easy to say no to. Yeah. No, I think it's great advice. And, and for all of us, just to be thinking of different ways, different techniques to do this. IODJ, I will seek a thank you so much for your great work. And everybody, go check out the book, The Destiny Formula, or just go to the website, thedestinyformula.com. A wonderful resource for all of us. We, uh, 
we got a lot to do, and yet you don't have to do it all today. Just take a little step here, a little step there. We'll also post links to all of this, these sites and information on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. Now, we'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. It is that time, folks, to time to go visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what will be coming up on their show in just 13 short minutes. Let's shoot it down to Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matthew. Hello, Governor. Hello. How are my kids doing? You know I don't what? know. You should ask them. We are, we are pretty darn good. Are you? Oh, wait. Were, were you saying that we are your kids? Yeah. Kinda. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, just, we're just good. Like, yeah, just trying to brother, just trying to, you know, treat, you know, build a fellowship. Treat yourself. <laughs> just trying to treat yourself. Yeah. Hey, um, so you guys, you guys ready? You have a good show today. I mean, I, I, I know you always do, but I'm thinking because you know there's a lot of women on campus over the next few days. Uh, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm thinking you guys need to stay indoors. No, no, no. no this it's, is it's a fun this time. This is Jerem's time. It's a fun time. This, this is, is when... Jerem's time on campus. More, more towels are stolen in hotels this week than any other week combined. <laughs> Throughout the entire, I am not kidding. Where do you get your data on towels? Uh, we're not naming names. I'm, I'm but, not naming uh, names, but this the the person that told us this has the word information in their job title. Yes, really. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you should talk yeah. to some people at uh, a place that rhymes with Terriet uh, Potel. As well. Okay, <laughs> Terriet Potel. <laughs> I love the Terriet Potel soft. Towels. No, it's, it's great that women's conference is on campus. Okay. Is, does it create a uh, parking issue for yes. the hardworking employees of BYU Broadcast? That is a minor detail. Minor detail. It's a minor detail. But get over it. Yeah. I'm I'm going out of town, so I when I realized that I was going out of town on the the two days, I was like, yes! You were, oh, I thought you'd be bummed because don't you, I thought you always walked around and signed autographs. Typically, I'm a shuttle br- bus driver. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've done yeah. the last four years. Yeah, bus number four, but, I think. Shuttle uh, four. Not this year. Jerem, what are the women going to do without their eye candy on campus? I don't know. Let's ask Ben Patch what he <laughs> thinks coming up on the show from Ben's Volleyball. Oh, interesting. Is that what we're... Okay, that was a good tease. <laughs> yeah. So we went we from women's We with Ben. The okay. word eye candy did come up. Oh, did it now? Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. In reference sense. to Jerem. Yeah. <laughs> really? Hey, I'll take it. Well, that's what... It fits. Yeah. You know, if the eye candy fits, you wear it. That's I what, have been for a long time. That's, that's what I hear. Um, Those words have never been used with me. So I was like, what? <laughs> well, what do you mean they've here, never been used? They've never of course, been used. My they, wife doesn't even use them. No, those. everybody here in on the radio side, <laughs> you're the golden boy that came up. You were born in the radio department. And then we, they just. We were born. They raised the you department. through, and now you're just. Like Mowgli in the jungle. <laughs> and we've exactly. we found the the. The red flower. Oh, you did. Mm-hmm. Do you want to keep red go- flower is YouTube. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. The, the red circle with the triangle in it. Just the powerful instrument. I yeah, I get didn't you. Want I, I have to explain the symbolism? Don't, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so okay, so your show, which you guys are still doing, yes, begins in ten minutes. And correct. It, let me just guess one thing: you're going to have to cover. Um, BYU baseball is now 22nd in the country, ranked 22nd, and softball's 20th. 
That's that pretty cool, is right? Correct. Did you hear what the Bat Cats, the baseball team, did last night? Yes, on BYU Radio. Oh, Twenty-three no. runs. Yeah, I heard, I, but I didn't hear it on BYU Radio. It's but, on BYU. Radio. But uh, Kyle Dean hits two home runs, scoring yes. six. Yeah, people. baby. That's Give the me a second. Break. That's the second game this year he's hit multiple home runs. He reminds me of myself when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. Dude's yeah. finally getting Like out. a third of a lifetime ago. Okay, and he's the guy, Matt, that we talked to you. I think we've told you this before, but he was the guy that coming out of high school was a projected first or second round draft pick in the major leagues, had some unfortunate injury setbacks, ended up at BYU, and now he's showing he's what it. he can do. So do you think he'll finish? Or is he going to go pro? Who? Dean? Uh, yeah. He has to play another year. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a rule in NCAA baseball that like if you don't go uh, right out of high school, you have to play. You have to wait at least three years. Oh, do you? Or, oh, I did not know. That. Or be oh, twenty one. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so an interesting the, rule. He's a yeah. sophomore out of high school, so he has to play one more year. Colton Shaver, however, is a guy that could go pro if he wants. He will join us in the studio coming up as well. You, yeah, you you might want to let some of your um, your hotness rub off on these guys. Okay, <laughs> we'll work on that. Listen, Spencer's these, so willing. Okay, these guys are cut, man. <laughs> these guys are in shape. They're good looking. I know. Peeps. They're, They're tough. Good students. Again, they remind me great, of myself when I was great people and ladies. Big. We have Riley Jensen from the softball team. They're in the, as you mentioned. They're ranked twentieth. This is the national player of the week. Man. She's the national cow. player of the week. Is a freshman. That's a good show so far. Any, I mean, anything else? Is there? Did any... we bury the lead? There have been some roster additions to the uh, football team, uh-huh. including a new, highly sought after quarterback. In fact, yes. maybe. The uh, best player in the history of the state of Utah, statistically, mm-hmm. in football. And BYU got him. On the roster, we'll talk about who he is and what kind of impact he could have this season. He made a huge impact in high school. Yes, he did. Holy cow. Uh, like, obnoxiously big. Yes. I, I'm, like, shocked by the – everyone knew who he was locally. It was like, oh, yeah, this kid's but a player. Let me he ask has you. transferred in. He is in – this is his second day of class at BYU today. Do, we, do, you rem- do you remember Riley Nelson in high school, man? Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. This, this kid – Kind of makes Riley seem like, like a punk. Well, <laughs> he's he's version not talking two, about Riley's personal. He's no, version no, no. 2.0, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, do you think? But is this going to create a little bit of a, a controversy? Like, is there now going to be At a the quarterback battle? Position, yes. Yes, but not for the starting. Position. But I guess competition's good, huh? Hmm? Competition huh? is great. Oh, that's good. See, there's a lot going on. This is the most loaded Wednesday, May third, in the. Four-year history of this program. I can tell you guys are ramping it up for women's conference. Tres de Mayo is a big day on the show. Oh yeah, it's yeah. It's I mean Cinco de Mayo is a big day. <laughs> We're ready to go, man. <laughs> Did you pull something there? That sounded like you pulled something. Pulled my larynx. You're what? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, good. So it's a great show. You're locked and loaded. All right, I'm just going to let you go. I mean, I'm going to let you go early. I don't know what you guys are going to do with two extra I'm minutes. I'm a peacock. No, let no, me fly. Yes, just we we will figure it out. But what will you do is the question. I mean, anyway, you got to let me fly, Matt. I'm a peacock. <laughs> you are a peacock, man. I just want to pluck one of your feathers yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet you turn you, it I into. I thought you want to do quite a few things, Jerem. That oh uh, yeah would inflict some pain. Give me a minute. <laughs> Give me a minute with that boy. All right, guys. Have a good have a good show. Uh, and somebody better get that peacock some water. Knock them dead, boys. Kill it. And, uh, of course, guys, that's six minutes away. Six minutes away, you get to do nothing but just dive into the deep end of BYU Sports with BYU Sports Nation. Hopefully you can swim. Yeah. You okay? Yeah, right there? May have pulled something. 
Yeah, I think I just saw you wince when you did that. Uh, okay, speaking of wincing, kids are kids are an inheritance, right? They're they're a gift, they're a blessing from God. So, what do you do when you go to your child's elementary school, the Robert E. Lee Elementary School in Petersburg, Virginia, and there are about one hundred vultures gathering? in the field and on the fence next to your child's school. Well, the vultures, you know, they're getting bigger, it seems like, Nikita Williams said, who won't let her daughter go back to school after hours. I'm scared that one of those big birds is going to come down and try to attack something or somebody or a child, she said. Moody just recently... oh. They're pretty annoying, too. Wow. That sounds more like a raptor (laughs) than a vulture. Hmm. Sure, that's a vulture? Yes. Wow. Moody just recently counted the birds sitting on the roof of the church near his home. Over 100 up on the church, and during mornings, you can come in the backyards here. My backyard and all those yards over there will be full of buzzards. He said the city is investigating removal options. I mean, it seems like it would be easy to remove vultures, wouldn't it? Am I just that naive? I mean, don't you just have to grab some roadkill, you know, deer carcass and hook it up to a tow truck and just drive it out of town? And won't they all just follow? I mean, maybe I'm naive. Haven't you seen the birds... Yeah. By Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, but those aren't vultures. No, but they're seagulls. Are they seagulls or crows? I don't remember. I don't either. I think it's all birds. Not Big Bird. He would never do that. Big Bird's a good bird. A little overweight, though. (laughs) With those funny rings around his legs. Never understood those. I think those were just socks, weren't they? I always thought they were socks. No, I think you had a leg. I think they were varicose veins. Ooh. I mean, I don't want to put him down. He's a great bird. You don't have to put him down. His funding will get taken away by somebody else. That was kind of sad. Well, you just threw that in there. Um, according to Stephen Hawking, he says, we must leave Earth within 100 years. Oh, so I'm covered. Uh, The professor Hawking believes life on Earth is at risk of being wiped out. Future generations must forge a new life in space if we want to survive. The Earth uh, has about 100 years before we're going to have to be having that plan established and, and active. So I'm covered and my kids are covered. Yeah. But are they? I mean, maybe he's not right. Maybe it's more like 1,000 years or maybe it's 50 Ah, that doesn't just bug you. One of the smartest men on earth. Now he's like, yeah, you got to you got to find some more planets and we're looking, but they're all so far away. And you know what's going to happen. You're going to be on a united flight to Mars and the next thing you know, you're going to get punched in the face and lose your seat. Now to the hero of the day. A man saves um, a motorist who crashed into Lake Springfield. As the cab of his truck filled with water from Lake Lake Springfield in Illinois late Sunday, Dave Booker 
feared it was over. His two sons and six-month-old daughter would grow up without a father, and his fiancée would be widowed. But thanks to heroic actions of a stranger, Booker, 31, is alive to talk about it. Trevor Clardy, 20 20 years old, is being held as a hero after saving Booker's life when his pickup truck flipped into the lake. Another minute and the cab would have been filled with water, Booker said, I owe him everything. Booker said he was on his way to work about 11 p.m. Sunday when the brakes on his pickup truck malfunctioned, heading into a curve. Holy cow. He did his best to negotiate the curve, but the large tires on his pickup truck hit the guardrail, sending his truck into the lake. By pure happenstance, Clardy and his friends were fishing nearby. Clardy said he remembers hearing a screech, a loud bang, and a splash. Without hesitation, he jumped into um, his car, drove over to where the accident took place, and then uh, Clardy got busy. When the back window wouldn't budge, Clardy said he didn't uh, only... He did the only thing, other thing he could think of, which was to start punching the front windshield. windshield. Somehow it cracked, and he pulled the windshield apart, and that's how he was able to drag Booker out. So there you have it, my friends. Just somebody there at the right time in the right place. That's all it takes to be a hero. Trevor Clardy is the hero of the day. And again, remember, we're all heroes to each other. We all have the ability to lift each other or to lower and put each other down. It's your choice. Let's uh, make a conscious effort to make this world a better place. That's why we do the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, let's take care of each other and make it a great day.